0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Engage and Equip podcast. My name is Andy Schmidt. I'm here with Pastor Nick Gibson and uh, Rachel Gibson. Um, this is a new a new thing. We're having. Rachel is the youngest person to ever be on the Optive Podcast, Optive Theology Podcast. So she's broken the record. Um, And we are talking kind of uh, about how can we minister to Gen Z in the church, um, which is a, a confusing question. And that's why we decided to have some younger people on, including Rachel. But Rachel will kind of be... Navigating the because conversation. Young people
1: are the bastions of clarity.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and, and yeah. Okay. So that was, that's a classic <laughs> Nick move right there. Just, no, it's just, <laughs> yeah, no, it's just, I think Andy's right.
1: It seems unseemly to have a conversation about Gen Z yeah. without yeah. another representative and a younger one even than Andy. So my yeah. it, Rachel's age was not yet mentioned. It is the ripe age of 17.
0: Yeah. So she's right in the thick of, I feel like you're right in the, like the Gen Z like high school, like that's where, where all the terrible things happen. And so you'll (laughs) kind of know what's actually going on, um, with, with Gen Zers and things like that in the church. And, and so that'll be great. So I think you'll kind of be playing the role of asking questions and and driving us towards different things, but you'll obviously give your opinion. So do you want to give, kind of tell people who you are and, and your relation to Nick? I can't remember if I said that yet.
2: Yeah, um, my name's Rachel. I am Nick's second oldest daughter. Um, as he said, I'm 17. I've been homeschooled actually since sixth grade. So my older sister Abby, she has ADHD, and my younger brother also has a form of it. So they didn't really thrive in like private school, which is where they they went, um, High Point. And so my mom took them both out, and then she just took me with them. That was before Lena was born, and so. I've just been homeschooled since then. So I have insight in the public school because I have friends that go there and ones that have left. Um, But I think I'm also, I had the privilege of seeing it from a more out view perspective Mm -hmm. and I think that will be helpful. So,
0: yeah, for sure. Okay. Well, you're the, you're the question asker. (laughs) So, so you can, you can get us rolling here.
2: Yeah. So. Did you want to say something first? I, I just want
1: to say, so the, the, we decided to narrow this a little bit to focus on, mm-hmm. there's like, how do we reach the Gen Zers that are already in our churches? Which right. is slightly different, a slightly different question than how do we reach Gen Z who's outside the church, has no cultural background in Christian mm-hmm. faith? It hasn't been raised in Christian faith. So, so we're starting with like not losing a generation, and then we can maybe go on to seeking to reach a
0: generation. Sure. Yeah.
2: Right. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I think what I'm kind of curious is, like, I know my dad didn't really like go to like a Protestant youth group. But Andy, I want to know what was your experiences with youth group? Did you like them? Did you not like them? Mm -hmm. And or also, like on a Sunday morning, kind of what was, what were the events that you participated in, and what did you feel?
0: Well, so when we talked about this podcast, we kind of talked on the phone for like an hour and a half, uh, Rachel and I, and the biggest thing that I was like, I, I do, I did not like my youth group experience. My youth group experience was pretty, and I, and I feel like i talked to a lot of people my age and asked them about this, but it was just pretty like you, it was, it was like you go there because your parents went to church. And then afterwards, like I had a lot of friends who would like go do drugs like right afterwards or um, people were having sex with each other in the, uh, people in the, in the youth group were like hooking up with each other and things like that. And so I kind of, my experience with youth group was just kind of like, these are a bunch of fakes. Um, as people kind of annoy me and it's like, not, not that I was like, not a terrible person too, but at least like, <laughs> I felt like I was a little bit more like outspoken and vocal about that. I didn't really like, I was a terrible person where these people felt like they were trying to, mm-hmm. to pretend and, and everybody was really, really good at acting like they were they were a really good person when adults were around, but then as soon as the adults adults left, things went downhill pretty fast. So, I I have like some pretty hardcore opinions on on youth group and whether or not um, we should have youth group. But and I think we'll get to that. But yeah, yeah. my experience was not good. Like I, I and and on Sundays it was a little bit better because. I did get to sit in with like the older people and, in the, like we called the big, big kids growing up. We'd say, I get to sit with the big kids, but these were the adults. Um, and I got to listen to those sermons. Um, and I always felt like I just got more from those than I ever got at youth group. Everything seemed to be pretty basic, low level, like nobody was really being challenged. Um, and, and I think that's, I think youth group is part of the reason why when I was in high school, I completely like walked away from my faith because I okay. just saw a bunch of hypocrisy and I didn't know how to deal with that. So, yeah. Yeah.
2: yeah. Um, Dad, I know you didn't go to a Protestant youth group, but do, did you have like a church experience similar to a youth group setting that you want to talk about at all?
1: Yeah. I I, mean, I love it when we have talks um, in public in which you learn new things about me. So I did go to a Protestant <laughs> youth group when I was in high school. Oh, right um, we lived, I grew up next to a army base called Fort drum near Watertown, New York. And so it, it started growing in size dramatically when I was about sixth grade and our, our school went from being like 99.999% white to being like 40% minority in like four years, which wow. was really interesting. Um, mm-hmm. but also the army base brought chaplaincy and chapels and pastors that were connected to the military. Mm-hmm. And so I ended up, um, mostly, um, because I was invited by certain girls going to the Protestant youth group on the army base, which was like mm. broadly Protestant for everybody. And it was run by mostly military people who were also Christians. So like the the guy who ran it was a lieutenant colonel in the military. And he was like the leader of this youth group on the side. It was a really, really cool experience. And I had, yeah. a, I had a really good time. And I have nothing but good things to say about it. However, I will say the depth of theology and discipleship was somewhat lacking in my experience of it. But I was also not in a small group. Hmm. Okay. Whereas my brother went into the same youth group two years before me and was in it kind of overlapping with me. And he got in a small group with guys with a particular guy who was like a captain in the military and had been a navigator. And my brother got a much more intensive discipleship experience that he benefited from greatly.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: And then um, after about sixth grade, I went to a summer camp, which was kind of like youth group for a week, so, like immersive youth group for a week. And that was my favorite experience of my young life, basically. I loved it. And um, probably because it, it was mostly outside. It was like canoeing and fishing and climbing and all the kinds of things I love to do athletically. Um, there were girls there, more girls than boys. And we did talk about Jesus and I did like that. I did care about that. Mm-hmm. And so that was, that's where I accepted Jesus like seven or eight times until it took. Yeah. So I do have, I do have some experience with like youth
0: stuff. I feel yeah. like it blows my mind how okay. <laughs> I do have a question for you, Nick. Does that, do you think that's generational? Like it blows my mind how different, that we like, we, we both had these experiences. Like we both like were in Protestant situations with, and like, I mean, I had a lot of Christian people around me, but my experience was just horrific. And, and do you think that has to do with the, like the fact that we're from different generations and that things were different back then in the church or that like, maybe, I don't know what else it could be, or maybe just because we had different circumstances.
1: Yeah, I mean, every once in a while, we did have youth leaders that got eaten by um, dinosaurs and stuff like that. And, you know, we had to keep that in mind when we did things together. Um, no, I, I mean, I honestly think one of the biggest differences is consumerism. Yeah. Like, I didn't expect to be entertained on a Hollywood level
0: yeah. when
1: I went to youth group. I expected to hang out with some other boys and girls, screw around, play a game,
0: yeah.
1: talk about God a little bit, and be with some people who were becoming my friends. Yeah, And um, I, I will say this. I th- and I so I so there was a consumer I also think there's the, there's an issue of brutality. I think that like I just I wasn't bullied at youth group. I didn't have like really bad people weren't nasty. Hmm. I, one of the things I've struggled with is as as younger kids some of the kids in my own family who've had experience at youth group, I mean they'll talk about how nasty kids are
3: yeah. at
1: youth group. And you know, my experience was is that kids who really wanted to be nasty usually didn't come to youth group. Yeah youth group was a was a subset of kids who just you know they they weren't going to be that way it was church and yeah. i don't know if that's still the case yeah. also i'll say this there wasn't one damn phone at youth group
0: yeah and it probably yeah, wasn't it, so clicky right i mean that's the the well, bullying probably comes from the clickiness that happens nowadays
1: well see the funny thing is the youth group that i was a part of wasn't had, drew students from like four or five different schools so it yeah. was regional yeah. and like some of the guys yeah. that were there were literally my rivals on athletic teams. Yeah. But we got along fine. Mm-hmm. We had a good time with each other and became friends. Hmm. Um, so I, I think there were no phones. So we were all actually present. Yeah. Um, I think that there was, I, we lived in a more rural environment. I think it was a more wholesome experience. Mm-hmm. There wasn't a lot of sexual immorality going around, at least in the youth group. People, mm-hmm. the relationships were pretty casual in that sense. Even when people were um, romantically interested in each other. Uh, so, th- so yeah. I mean, I I think, frankly, um, electronic devices are terrible for y- for kids relating to each other. Yeah, and I think that I think that like people talk about how Gen Z is like super accepting, like that's one of the marks of as long as everybody's happy. <laughs> everything's okay. No, yeah. And I do not believe that. I believe no. that. Th- I, I believe that. I believe <laughs> well, it's, I believe that's true. And the opposite at the same time, I believe they're mean, petty jerks and they're very accepting. And as long as everybody's happy, everything's okay. Cause I've watched well, this with my own kids. Um, like, especially my college student, like morally speaking and politically speaking, well, not even politically speaking, morally speaking, everything's okay. As long as everybody's happy and everybody agrees with you. Right. Right. It's like a fake diversity. But right. then when one kid gets crossways with each other, these friendships just completely fall apart in 20 seconds mm-hmm. and they don't it confront each other. Honestly, they don't mm-hmm. forgive each other deeply. Mm-hmm. It's, like, it's like that whole Judeo-Christian Protestant ethic of like Christianity. where like, well, you tell people you're hurt and you forgive mm-hmm. one another and so on, which I did see modeled for me. And I was taught to do in my church experience mm-hmm. doesn't seem to be a high priority. You know, that people don't seem to no. believe that when Jesus says, if you don't forgive others, your father in heaven will not forgive you. Mm-hmm. They don't seem to take that super seriously.
2: No. Yeah, I, I think maybe happiness is an issue. And like, we're going to talk about suicide and depression a little bit later in the podcast. Mm-hmm. But I also think that especially in youth group with phones and in other social situations, I've use my phone as a comfort. So not necessarily like something to make me happy, but to make me feel comfortable. And I know that that's something that is true about a lot of my friends and a lot of people that I know that Mm -hmm. in youth group teenagers don't have to grapple with the feeling of feeling uncomfortable and anxious in a, in a situation if they can just pull out their phone and scroll and look at something Mm -hmm. that like willingly putting your phone in your pocket and experiencing, experiencing something for two hours is not only really, beneficial to you as a teenager, but also will help you feel less and less uncomfortable in those social situations. So I I don't necessarily think it's a, it's a happiness issue, even though it definitely can be in some certain situations, but also just like a being comfortable and not insecure, I guess. Yeah.
1: It's it's an action of avoidance rather than an action of engagement.
0: I mean, I would say that that would be under the umbrella of happiness. Like people would be like, I'm sure. not happy being uncomfortable, so I'm just going to be comfortable doing whatever I want to do.
1: Yeah, right. I think it's both an issue of anxiety and boredom. Yeah. So they're you're, they're anxious in relating with other people, but they're mm. also kind of like not titillated every millisecond, mm-hmm. and so they just they're like, well, I'll just take out my phone, and look at something. Yeah. And I'll infinitely scroll Instagram right. or something like that. Yeah. And so they're back and forth anxiously on Snapchat, and then they're scrolling mm-hmm. through Instagram instead of. I mean, I know this is old person talk, but instead of living the real life that's actually in front of them.
2: Yeah, I was but, talking about to... I think
1: that their relationships are volatile. And so I think yeah. that it's is anxious to live in the real world outside their phone.
0: Right. Yeah.
2: Because yeah. yes, you
1: can't still. you can't filter somebody. Like if Rachel's yelling at me at home, I can't just mm-hmm. like turn my phone off.
0: Right. Or block. Like she's her. right there. Yeah. Right.
1: Right. Not that she ever does that.
2: Never. <laughs> um so okay, so like on the topic of youth group, and obviously like you've both had different experiences. Um I know I've had a similar experience as Andy, um, just kind of a little bit removed. Um, is youth group actually biblical? So I know that it's like been an institution since Dad you were born or engaged in youth group. <laughs> um, I don't I don't know history ago. well enough to like know if it's been something for a while, but I know it's been around. Is it actually biblical?
0: Nick, can I, I'll start. Okay, and then ahead. you can rip everything to pieces that I say because I, I don't have I don't know if I have a full answer on whether or not it's like biblical biblical like the Bible says like I I don't think the Bible says that you you have to have. Um, Youth groups. I don't think it says that you can't have youth groups. Um, But but what I think that when talking about youth, what often happens in the church is that we talk about youth groups and we don't talk about parenting. And so it feels to me like like whether or not it's it's biblical kind of takes away from like what it's supposed to do like the question is, like what are we supposed to do with our youth is raise them up I mean I read like Titus is it Titus 2 or Titus 3 where it talks about what older um, men and women are supposed to do to, to raise up the younger generations um, and it seems to me like it's pretty it's 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 intergenerational and it's pretty personal and it's a lot of like teaching and things like that and so if, I, I don't know I wouldn't go as far to say that it's not biblical, but what I if I don't think it's beneficial, I, I don't think, and so I don't know. I mean, historically, Nick, you probably have more on on that, but yeah.
1: Yeah, I mean, I could run you through a couple hundred year history of youth movements, but I don't know that that's the best thing to do in this context. I, a youth group has been around for a number of, for enough generations that there are boomers, some boomers, at least, who were in youth groups in American Protestant churches. Yeah. So it's been a multi-generational thing and it's changed pretty significantly over time, yeah. you know. Um, but yeah, I would say that it's like but the Bible doesn't command youth groups to exist, nor mm. does it forbid them. So it's a question of prudence. And I think that there are some benefits to having age and developmentally specific ministries and also liabilities to it, right? So at High Point Church, one of our core values is being an intergenerational church from all generations to all generations. We tell younger people, younger adults, you're not really behaving like an adult until you can come in the church and talk to a 22-year-old and then a six-year-old and then a 74-year-old and then a 46-year-old and like it doesn't really register anymore they're all people that you're relating to you're you're not you're not driven by the subset of your people and you have to be with your age group because that's an active that's a childish human characteristic to be like i've got to be with my age group you know Mm -hmm. so i think that that's really important so i think that if we do have gender or develop or age in developmentally specific ministries they they have to be a means or a handmaiden to the end of an intergenerational adult church.
2: Would you say that there's characteristics of a youth group that tend to swing more towards being unbiblical? Like where the youth group is, as a whole isn't unbiblical, but that there are certain elements of it that like will lead to something that's unproductive?
0: I mean, th- oh, I was going to say. In, in the sense of like intergenerational relationships and discipleship, like I don't, I, don't, I don't know if it's like a sin if you aren't discipled by somebody, but it's extremely destructive to your faith. And the fact that like, I mean, Rachel, you and I talked about the fact that like a lot of the people who are leaders in youth groups are millennials and that's right, only yeah. one generation removed from the Gen Zers. They're not going to be able to teach them Barely. anything. And so, right. yeah. So as far as like, is it, is there anything like unbiblical? Like, again, I, I don't unless they're teaching like heresy or something, I don't really think there's anything yeah. on biblical, but it doesn't seem to be it doesn't seem to be good for these kids. It doesn't seem to be beneficial in any way. That's that would be my.
1: yeah, I, so I think that um, so there's a benefit in learning for the person from the person who's just a little further along than you, right? Because they were just struggling with a thing you're coming into struggling with, and they've come up with with a preliminary answer for how to deal with it. Mm-hmm. So in that sense, um, having millennials, Or people who are like in their early twenties in the youth ministry as leaders can be highly beneficial. Mm -hmm. Also, they're not they're not in life stages where they just flat flat don't have the time to do the volunteering. You know, like if you have a youth group retreat, you need like fifty percent of your leaders to actually go on that retreat. Right. Uh, Frankly, that's really hard for me or my wife with four kids at home. You know,
0: empty nesters.
1: Yeah. So yeah, I think recruiting more empty nesters in youth ministry could be good, but those empty nesters have got to have the right attitude. Which sure. we can right. we can get to that probably later. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. I also think that when youth group functionally replaces church, hmm. and when youth when kids think that they're those are the, basically the same thing when they're not, mm-hmm. like the worship of God and the participation in his ordinances, being part of the intergenerational church, being a member of the church, being under the discipline of the pastors and elders, all of what makes church church is is not operating in youth group. And so what happens is that kids go to youth group a certain portion of them will go to a college youth group that we call a college ministry. Right. Mm -hmm. And then what happens, right. And if they haven't converted to um, being part of the intergenerational local church, by that point, a a significant portion of them fall off and just don't become part of the local church. Mm -hmm. And that's a, that becomes a big problem. Mm
2: -hmm. Yeah. I, I think something that I was trying to get at with that question is like for me, and I was talking to my, my younger brother and he struggles with, leaders, especially millennials, either not knowing how to discipline the kids in youth group in a loving way, and also to talk about God consistently, that they're so focused on making the kids feel comfortable that like, they won't even begin to talk about anything relating to the Bible or God because of, especially like the, like the kids dime I'm around, because it's, mm-hmm. if they don't feel comfortable, like then they just won't engage. And so is yeah. like, is is there, is there a way to to kind of alter that for like the people that either want to lead a youth group, that is there a way to like turn your small group into one that wants to to talk about God?
1: Rachel and I were talking about this. Remember we were talking about how like one of the main things the students are dealing with, especially right now is like their own anxieties. And -hmm. then you get a bunch of millennials that have not really conquered or overcome their anxiety. Mm -hmm. And then you just know that it's a psychological fact that anxiety feeds off of anxiety. Mm -hmm. And so you get a bunch of like anxious Gen Zers with a bunch of anxious young millennials and you get like this like terrible anxiety feedback loop Mm -hmm. and what and that's what i think that's one of the reasons why you said we need old people rich is because like you want people that have that have crossed over the hump of dealing with insecurity to beginning to deal with mortality carl carl jung said this happened somewhere between 40 and 45 where people Mm stop wondering dealing with their own sense of inferiority and they start thinking about what their life has meant and what, how death is coming and how, you know what I mean? And that's just a different mentality of life. And so you need these people, you need people who have dealt with their anxiety, who can be a calm presence, who, a calm, non-anxious presence. Right. And that also they, they, they love the students and they don't give one fat flip about whether the students like them.
2: Yeah. Right. Like, and, and that's
1: hard for a 20 year old to pull off.
0: It's basically impossible.
2: Yeah. 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 And like like I've experienced that and also like with like boomers there it's it's I feel like they start to like teenagers like once they're coming out of the like okay they're all out of my house now like for me mm -hmm. when I see like a three-year-old I'm like oh my gosh like it's a terror but it's not my terror Mm -hmm. and so I don't I, I can like it and be around it for a little bit without having to deal with it for a long amount of time
0: yeah yeah I was yeah. gonna say uh, the the so I'll just kind of give my I, I think at some point you might ask about this but I'll just give it now that like the the reason why I think I would completely if, if I could have if it was the world was the way that I wanted it to be um <laughs> abolish oh, no. like abolish all youth groups is because I think like what basically like what Nick is saying about, these, like, anxiety, like, I guess there just would be called, like, anxiety clubs a lot, like, where you just have one group feeding into the other group, feeding into the one group. It's like when I was growing up, my parents would bring me to all of their small groups and stuff like that too. And Mm -hmm. whenever I felt like I got the most growth in my faith as a young person, it was, it was almost always when I was with older people in their small groups. And there was some sort of like chain of hierarchy. Cause when I was like, if there's a millennial who's like 23, 24, and I'm like 16, I don't, Care that they, like they're not my authority. That's the way that I like. That, like I had a hard time viewing them as my authority. Whereas when I was in a small group at, in high school or even in middle school, I felt like that was there was a clear authority. There was people who were like in their seventies or eighties, and I had to have some sort of respect for them because they've lived their entire life. So I, I've I've always thought that it would just be so much more beneficial for these kids to actually be involved with their parents in small group. I don't I don't Did know he- why that's not something that is talked about more.
2: Did you have? Christian friends that went to your church that were your age, that were actively pursuing God when you were a teenager?
0: Oh no, not, not as a teenager at no. all.
2: Would you say that? So like for, I do, so like I've, have, I have friends that mm-hmm. I like read the Bible with and like, we are trying to actively pursue God as teenagers and youth group is a really good way to either see other teenagers that are at least trying and also grow ourselves. Like I'm not discounting that other adults and old people are full of tons of wisdom and that being around them and talking to them will help you a lot. But I also think that if you if teenagers have the opportunity to surround themselves by other teenagers trying to better themselves in a godly way, that that could be really productive. Is there is there a youth group that you could see that would be beneficial for high schoolers without completely abolishing it?
0: I, yeah, I don't, I I can't because I, like we talked about earlier, I don't think that like that's not happening. It's not, it's not young godly people trying to better themselves. Basically what you get is if you, if I bring one of my high school friends to youth group or whatever, what they're going to find there is basically what they find at high school, but just masked behind a bunch of fake facade personas that people have to put out at church. So it's just going to confuse them even more. And, and that's what I, that's the issue that I had. And so as of right now, with this current generation and where we're at right now, do I see that? I don't, I don't see it being, I don't, I don't see there being another way to do it. And also on top of that, what I've also found with my generation is that these, they want, Like more than they want to hang out with more people their age who hurt them all the time, they actually want some guidance and they want some older people to care for them and love them. And, and like, they want older parent type people to talk to because they don't get to talk to their own parents. So I, I don't see it. I don't see it ever working out in in this time period right now. No, maybe in the fifties it worked and they did it differently back then. And there was a different society.
2: Do you think that there's a way though, for like kids that are my age, like, 15 to 18 that want to ask to pursue God because they their parents have done a good job raising them to want to do that is is there a way that they can one get guidance from older people and also not be a fake Christian just because they're young
0: yeah they just do like what you said they go get guidance from older people and
2: then don't be a fake Christian. Okay, but like, okay, let's take the average teenager in Madison that's athletic. So, like, they go to public high school for eight hours a day, they mm-hmm. go to practice for two hours at night, and then they go home and do homework, and then they basically just do it over and over again, and Sundays are their off days, maybe, if they don't have a game. So. From, but, like, they don't have an opportunity to go be around other teenagers that are that are at least trying. In yeah, my I, experience, like, there are youth groups, and there are people, some people in youth groups that are striving for that. Do you think abolishing it completely would be worth it if there's at least some high schoolers that are trying to strive for something?
0: I mean, I, I basically look at it like you're going to get out of it what you put into it. It's like it seems like that person's priorities are a little bit off. Like the chances of somebody from the Madison area making it far in sports and things like like you're not going to be the one in a million kid I think I think the problem is with how we raise the kids against it's like these kids believe right. that that them putting all of their time and energy into getting perfect straight A's and being the best athlete ever is like that's what life's all about and then what happens is they go to college after they don't get their scholarship for athletics because they weren't good enough because there's people way better than them out there and they go and they do it they get a degree in like something that like uh, millions of other people have gotten a degree. Like they find out that they're not so unique and then they get <laughs> depressed and then they start drinking and they go out of, they out of, they go out of control. That's what you see happen all the time in our generation. I think that like, I think that the, their priorities are out of line. I don't think, I think that Christianity, I think somehow, and I don't know how it's done because I was all on the, on the sports thing in high school. I was like, right. I'm going to make it and everything. And I didn't, but there needs to be some something that gets somehow this needs to get across the younger people that like, Like the, the purpose of your life is not to go out and, and get, and be the best athlete and like the most genius person ever. I mean, I don't know. It just, it feels like the priorities are off. They're already off in the beginning. It's hard to fix. them. So, okay. So let me, let me jump in here.
1: So one of the things I really loved about the Christian camp, I was a part of as a teenager, as this is also true of the youth group, but is that what had been created was an environment that had certain characteristics that were really fought for hard and they included trying to get adult leaders who were very young like like I was a counselor at 17 but like they were looking for people who were committed to, they had a real relationship with Jesus they were committed to the values of the camp which included like there were no put downs at this camp. They were called discounts. Like you don't discount people for any reason. We're here to be encouraging. This camp is supposed to be fun. You don't get to do that. Um, and they were in like, in like fireside was like contemplative and like focused on the Lord. We had gospel centered speakers and it, it created an environment, even at teen camp where there was a, where there was a good bit of like who likes who going on. Yeah. There was, there was a strong emphasis on like asking questions, seeking the Lord, having spiritual conversations and, and, and it, it was really infectious, and I loved being in that environment. I and so I when I hear you talking about youth group, Andy, I feel like I th- that a bad youth group is bad. I totally agree with that. Mm-hmm. The question is, can you make a good youth group, and right. is it advisable to try?
0: Yeah, and my, my answer is like your your upbringing. Like you grew up in the like, like the eighties or nineties. I don't know. I don't know what when your upbringing would have been that, that time frame right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So there was more like two parent households back then. Like there was much, much less like kids grew up in extremely like so broken and dysfunctional homes. Like, like your foundation was already like overall as a society was just a little bit better than it is now. So now you have kids who most of my friends grew up in divorced households with parents who are remarrying. So they have new brothers and sisters. Like there's so much dysfunction in their own life that like, Like the idea that you're going to go on Wednesday nights to this thing and it's going to really help you in a significant way. Like obviously, God can work in all things, and I believe that He does. But Mm -hmm. it's my same issue with College Age Ministries. It's like that's not really going to. That's not. We're not building up godly men and women. What we're doing is we're putting a bandaid over a gushing wound, and we're hoping that the bleeding stops. Is that's what I think? Not that that's not like I think that your situation was probably beneficial and great. But
1: yeah, but uh, like even when I was a camp counselor, one of the Groups of children that people love to send to Christian camps as foster kids, yeah, because like they'll have a tough enough life. You get them out of the house; they usually like camp, and whoever's dealing with them doesn't have to deal with them for a week. Mm-hmm. I mean, I I had cabins where out of eight kids, four of them were on Riddlin, and you know, three of them were foster kids, mm-hmm. and not the same as it, it was some overlap, but not total with Riddlin, right? Like, mm-hmm. and it was very chaotic. I remember having cabins that were incredibly chaotic. getting them to go to bed was just really hard, you know? Yeah. But oftentimes by day three, it was totally different. Mm -hmm. We still gave the kids a Ritalin, but they didn't need it anymore. Mm -hmm. And the kids were gelling. We were starting to get a feeling of acceptance in the cabin. I was, I was learning how to lead each kid individually as well as them. It's like, so part of it was just, I mean, and, and granted, I was a counselor then, and now I lead a very large church. Maybe I had some giftings that aren't common, whatever. But the point is, is that like we had lots, plenty plenty problem kids, but we had a strong enough culture of what those kids were being a part of and what we did and didn't tolerate that we were able to create a counter community. That was hope, and, and of course, it's more radical than a Christian camp because that's why you make the camp out in the woods, yeah, to have a more radical opportunity to create a counter community. But I do think there are things you can do in a youth ministry like that where you can build a counter community within the community and then you create that culture and maybe there are things you don't tolerate like if kids are mean you tell them look you can't be like that here we want you here but if you behave like that we don't want you to come
2: how can you know? how can how can millennials do that like how, they- how what what ways can you offer because in my experience there's tons of millennials at our church that do help and help in youth group how are ways that they can be I mean, I guess how maybe they would say it is like firm, but not offensive to their students and not parent them, but discipline them in a, like in sending them down a right path that like will help them in the future.
0: I mean, you have to, I, th- well, I, and I don't, you have to understand that like discipline is, is you're going to be offended at some, to some capacity, like, like a kid's not going to like it that somebody's telling them they can't do the thing that they want to do. And I think that that's kind of where some of the root of the problem comes from, especially with millennials wanting to be so like affirming, affirming of these kids is that they, and, and these millennials growing up in families where they probably didn't get disciplined in a healthy way either. Um, I, I don't, I don't know. I think that what Nick said about the anxiety thing and the circle of anxiety, it's like, I don't think that the millennials are really in the spot and I'm t- we're obviously speaking in gen- as in, a, in generalities or whatever right now because right. we're not talking about individuals. But like it doesn't feel like they're in a spot that they should be trying to discipline people, especially because I know a lot of the millennials and what's happening outside of small gr- or youth group lead- leadership is not good. Like what they're doing outside of that. So it seems like it's, there's some disconnects there, but I'm the Debbie Downer in this. I feel like I'm just the Debbie Downer here. (laughs) So So, like, I
1: I think part of the issue is that I think that it's reasonable. Like you're in the life stage, Andy, I would say that like it's reasonable to go through a period of like the dark night of the soul that like this all sucks. (laughs) If you're going to come out of it and say these things be as they may, I'm going to do the best I possibly can to make things the way Jesus wants them to be. Right. As long as you don't fall into a un-Jesus centered deconstruction where you wallow about how the church is and how the world is bad and how the Mm -hmm. things are blah, blah, blah. And you don't remember that Jesus knew all that stuff when he called you to make disciples Mm -hmm. in his name and follow him as the martyred risen Christ. You Mm -hmm. know, and so I think that if you because I felt all this way, like when I was in. When I was in college, I had these I, th- these kind of attitudes about the local church and how they didn't care about college students. They didn't care about my generation. They only mm-hmm. cared about theirs. And so they only cared about money and blah, 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 blah. And that was hard for me. And then I started to realize like what ministry was like and, and the struggles these ministers were having, having. And I tried to like put all that together to become a different kind of minister myself, right?
3: Mm-hmm.
1: And so when it comes to youth ministry, I think part of the issue is, is that we – I mean, there are some endemic issues. Like for example, a lot of youth ministries have been stepping stone ministries for people who wanted to do other ministries. Mm-hmm. So people are youth pastors mm-hmm. for less than yeah. five years. That's very different to create a culture in a youth ministry in that mm-hmm. period of time. Um, the job of youth ministry is as hard as being a associate pastor, but we usually pay associate pastors 35% more than youth pastors.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: And we pay senior pastors more than hundred percent more than youth pastors usually. Mm-hmm. Um, And so that's, it's difficult to recruit really high quality men and women to be youth ministry, like point leaders, Mm -hmm. but that's the person who disciples your millennials to help them become a non-anxious presence for your students. And so like who that point person is, is pretty critical. And if we're we're paying that person $35,000 a year and they have three kids, you know, it's, it's tough for them to do that. And it's tough to find people who want to do that with their lives.
0: For me, it's an
1: issue of having great. Youth pastors, it's hard I, to find great youth pastors.
0: I, I don't, so hard first, to find great
1: pastors, yeah. And now I we wanna... have all these pastors quitting in the great resignation, and now churches are spending like there's a large church close to us here in Madison that just spent two years looking for a youth ministry director. Two years, mm-hmm. and they like they're a huge church, but they still couldn't find somebody that, that was suitable, yeah. Because uh, a lot of people that would have been youth pastors coming out of seminary 15 years ago. They're all going right into pastoral ministry, like non-youth ministry, right? Like the seminary that I graduated from in 2002, when I was there, they had 900 students, and now they Mm -hmm. have 417. Evangelicalism just isn't producing as many ministers as it used to.
0: Mm -hmm. I I want to make something clear. Like I agree with you that... So my point in being critical of these things is not to say that these people don't care about youth or that they don't care about anybody else. Like I think that they actually, I think that they do care. I just, I, I'm, I'm more critical of the strategy around like, like using the church's deep care and desire for people to grow in godliness to its the best of its ability. It doesn't seem like that's being done. And that, so I, I don't want, like you said that, like maybe like I can be, I don't want it to seem, but there's some sort of line that you have to draw of like, some things just aren't working. And if we all just are like, well, God makes everything work good. That's true. But it also feels like I'm not giving God a good enough. I'm not giving him my my best if I'm just... Like if there's a better way to do it, why would we not just try the better way? I don't, I don't understand that.
1: Well, yeah, but I mean, that's the question. Is there a better way to do it? Like, I mean, have you, I'm sure when you played basketball, you were playing games where you're down by four and then you're down by six and like, you're losing control of the game. You're down by 12 Mm -hmm. and it's like, and then somebody on your team just isn't trying as hard as they were. Mm -hmm. And you like have a timeout and you're like, dude, like we got to stop these the guy like play D the guys, like we're losing. Like we're Mm losing. And you're like, look we don't have a chance to figure it out when the game, if we get down by 20, Mm -hmm. like we got to keep it close. And like, Mm -hmm. until the coach figures out the new game plan that we're going to play to catch up, we got to keep this game within six to 12 points. Mm -hmm. So from my perspective, like, yeah, maybe it'd be great if we had some like super awesome next gen thing, but right now, like I need to keep the game close enough so that we can figure out something. we can win.
0: But I think that that's where we're disagreeing. I don't think the game's close. I think we're already down 20. I, I think we're going to I think that I think that we're going to see Gen Zers just continually walk away from the church in large droves because the, I mean, we are already seeing that. So I don't think we're down four or six. I think we're down 20. I think we're down 30. But the thing but just like
1: saying that in a huddle and basketball game, you don't get any credit for that. Like that's we all know that. The question is like, what am I doing?
0: My solution, I mean, what I think that would literally help is if the church and the people who have the most influence in the church influence younger people to be more involved in small groups, intergenerational small groups and in um, interpersonal discipleship, like the way that Rachel is discipled by um, Nicole, like one-on-one, more one-on-one and then group with different generations. I think that that that's the answer to the, I think that would be like my solution. Yeah, well, the
1: last four times I was at youth group, one of the main announcements and part of the discussion was signing up for a mentor.
0: Yeah, that's great.
1: Yeah, and I mean, that was part of what, but they were trying to incorporate that through the youth group as a place to gather students and then relative to these small group leaders that were making themselves available to mentor students. I mean, part of the issue is you got to have mentors for students. And that's who these like millennials that we're talking about how bad they are. That's what they've made themselves available to do because they care. So, right. I mean, I mean, maybe we needed, maybe we need to have a better discipleship thing for the adult leaders in in for ministries. them to
0: be discipled.
2: Right. Yeah, so, I, mean,
1: I mean, maybe that's what it is. Yeah, I agree.
2: Well, right. So like if we're talking about Gen Z in the church specifically, like, there's always teenagers that don't attend youth group or only go to youth group and not to church. But it's also like there's responsibility on both sides. When you talk about if you're a serious teenager and and like in regards to your faith and you actually want to grow, there's things that you have to go do. Like for me, it was, I have to go get a mentor. I have to try and read the Bible every day. I have to actively like listen to other music other than like just hard rap. So that like, Mm -hmm. (laughs) like I, feel better in my mind. And that, like, mm-hmm. I can be happy sometimes and not hear about other people shooting each other. They're like <laughs> things that nourish my soul yep. in other ways outside of culture. That's part, like, that's my responsibility as someone who's trying to better myself, but also in youth group, when you're talking about adults who are trying to shepherd their kids, like there are ways that they are responsible to do that. How, mm-hmm. like, what ways are those? Because, that they can like,
0: help other people do that or that they can that, do it themselves?
2: That they Well, I don't think that necessarily like youth group is a time to do that. Like, I don't want a leader that's still figuring out if they believe in God. Uh, but, yeah. But like when you're talking about in youth group or in the church, mm-hmm. Gen Z has a responsibility to mm-hmm. pursue their faith for themselves. Yeah. But I also think there are other people in the church that have responsibilities to help them foster those things. And i I think I'm, I'm kind of curious those specifics. Nick. Like, um, so yeah. whether that means like mentor a child, like open yourself up and like willingly go spend time with a kid that you might not enjoy in the moment, because like, mm-hmm. it's your responsibility to help them be better.
0: Mhm. Be- so you're so so is your question more like is it is you're talking about like the people who are in leadership in um youth group right those people like like what are the things that they can do to help better these kids like specific things like like encouraging them encouraging them into into these things yeah i I think like you named i mean encouraging these kids into like i mean reading my bible was a difficult thing when i was in high school and it was probably just because i didn't I didn't ever see the value in it. I was like, I already know the overall story and everything, but, but once, (laughs) but like, but like once I got, you know, once like I started talking to Nick and, and Vince and John and these guys and, and they started to explain to me like the complexities and, and the depth of scripture, that's kind of what like stimulated my brain into really wanting to figure these things out. But it could be different for a different kid. I think you have to, you have to have a relationship with the kid. Like you, you can't just, it's not one size fits all. I don't think you can't, it's not going to work the same with me as it does with a different kid. I don't know if that answers that at all. But
2: yeah, what is what is correction look like in a mentorship relationship? So oh. when you are, oh my goodness, when you are mentoring a kid that's what ten ten years younger than you, maybe, mm-hmm. what is your role as an adult in correcting them and them being dumb or stupid?
0: Well, Nick Nick has some practice in this. <laughs> yeah.
1: I mean, it depends a lot on the temperament, right? So both of the two of you are the like, give it to me straight kind of people. Yeah. And yeah. so you just do that. You just give it to them. Like, so the straight. People always have a love language relative to communication, how they want to be communicated with. Mm-hmm. And so if people want you to give it to them straight, then they feel cared about if you give it to them straight.
3: Yeah.
1: And so that's what you should do. And other people have very, very different attitudes about it. But ultimately, people have to believe, they have to trust you and they have to believe that you like them. Mm-hmm. You know, I was on a youth a youth ministry retreat last year, I think it was. And I, you know, I didn't know the names of about half the students. So I just kind of plowed myself down at the freshman girls table. These are the, the children I hate the most in the <laughs> group, right? And I'm like, I just need to sit down with these girls, learn their names, just learn to like them, you know? And so I learned all their names and I like, you know, just talk to them. I said stuff that I thought we, you know, we, we joked around and I didn't pick on them for looking at their phones constantly. And, um, and I just was like, okay, I like these kids. I just have to like these kids and they need to know I like them. Mm -hmm. And then from there, like they talked to me, I talked to them. We had rapport, but I had to like, it only took, it only took like 45 minutes at one meal, Mm -hmm. but I had to create it. And the students need to know that, that's there but then they also need to know that you're going to tell the truth and they have to believe that you're competent too Mm -hmm. and a lot of adults just have not studied themselves approved to quote the older language of I think it's first Timothy or second Timothy you know they just they don't have answers to the questions millennials ask Mm -hmm. and because of that the millennials don't find them super helpful or the Gen Zers like they're not going to come back to somebody who gives them answers worse than the answer they came up with (laughs) themselves
0: yeah I was gonna say that like one thing that was helpful for me, um, or, or, or I think one thing that would also be helpful for a lot of Gen Zers is is I, I needed some sort of assurance that like these people weren't gonna abandon me, like that no. Nick or John, they like they they weren't gonna just like only mentor me or disciple me until it's not convenient for them anymore. I, th- th- I needed some sort of assurance that I was going to be abandoned because I felt abandoned by all my mm-hmm. teachers and coaches and even my parents at times. And so like, right. I remember and Nick, you might not remember this, but when we were, you were driving me home, like when we first started meeting after we like went to basketball or something. And, I used to like do this thing with adults where I would just like kind of like cuss, cuss them out or like tell them to F off or F you um, to see what their reaction was. Cause some, cause, cause if the reaction is a lot of them are like, well, don't talk to me that way. Don't ever speak to me like that again. And, and I, and it, I don't know. It was, I was messed up. So, anyways, I was trying to figure out if that was going to be like Nick's response. And I think I said like "f off" or "f you." Or do you remember that in the truck? I remember. So many people say that to me, Andy. I don't. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, I I said that to you in the truck, and you like you didn't even care. You were like, yeah, and then you just kept talking about something <laughs> else. And I was like, I was like, okay, I like this guy, but like it, it was because. <laughs> I knew that I wasn't going to say one thing that was going to offend him so much that he was going to abandon everything. So I, I I needed to get that out of the way beforehand. Now I'm not saying that every Gen Zer is going to do that; they probably won't. But I think yeah, that
2: don't go say f you to hey, every adult in your life just to right. see how they're going to react.
0: Yeah, that was a bad way of, of figuring out if people are <laughs> going to abandon you. Um, but but the bottom line of like trying to figure out whether or not these this these people who are, are they going to abandon me? I think that a lot of young people are trying to figure that out, and that's why they have a hard time trusting older people. And I think if you can, yeah. if you can assure them that you're not going to leave, if things get hard, that they're going to probably start opening up. It might take a long time to get there, but yeah. You
1: know. Yeah. This gets at some of the cultural rot that is harming all generations right now. Um, people I'm at more and more. I'm counseling people who hate themselves and who have very strong, personal symptoms of abandonment like just fear of abandonment that people and and part of it is that our culture more and more is treating people as instruments as instruments as means to ends as as objects rather than subjects that exist for their own sake that deserve to be loved and so as that happens people realize that they're being treated as an instrument not as a person and so they're going to be cast aside as soon as they're not indispensable right mm-hmm. and so this idea that like <clears throat> your friend is just going to drop you if you say that this is the wrong thing on social media right cancel culture is a version of this but it's only one of yeah. many versions of this mm-hmm. if i find a cooler friend i'm just going to drop you if i find a if i do another thing or if you're not on the team this if year, i get a girlfriend night, yeah right <clears throat> if i get a girlfriend i'm going to ghost you right yeah but with adults too like if you don't make me proud or if you're not performing the way I want you to perform, I'm going to treat you with nothing but disgust and yeah. um, I'm not going to find ways to rejoice in you. Right. Like all those dynamics create this, like, so a lot of kids who haven't even been abandoned yeah. have symptoms of abandonment. And then you have a lot of broken families who kids have a relationship with their parents. So they don't think that they feel abandoned, but they do feel abandoned. Divorce always causes yeah. feelings of abandonment. Um, and instead of psychologists, instead of taking, pains to research why divorce doesn't hurt kids if they would if they work a little harder on how it produces these symptoms of abandonment and then what's going to happen is younger people are going to put forward abandonment tests that are not particularly sophisticated right like cussing somebody out but like there's lots of versions of that yeah where like young people fairly consistently push other people away mm-hmm. to see if they'll go away yeah yeah and I think that you need to realize that one of the things that was the hardest for me with my oldest teenager, because she was my first one, is when she said something to me about how she felt about me or where she wanted me to go, I believed her. Like, I took it at face value. Oh. And that's not what you're supposed to do. You know, you, that you, you take it as an expression of how they're feeling right then.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Where you take it seriously. They mean what they say, kind of. But you also realize that like, man, they're changing every day. Yeah. You know? And so I think if right. you, if you treat younger people that way, where you take seriously what they say, but you also realize that they're changing and whatever condemnation they, they give of you, it doesn't matter to you and how you care about them. Mm-hmm. And they have to right. see that because if they don't, they can't be friends with you. You can't mention them and they can't know God. They have to yeah. believe that they can like say the F word in front of God, you know, and be like, screw you. I hate you. And realize that God isn't going to pander to that, Mm -hmm. but he also isn't going to walk away from them. Right. You know?
2: Yeah. Yeah. So so one of the ways that I have felt loved or felt cared about or not abandoned by my mentors or just other, um, other godly women in my life and men is them willing to entertain like my dumb teenager questions Mm -hmm. or like obnoxious, like I want to be an adult as soon as possible questions. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm And oh, also, and the, like,
1: and the everything is wrong with everything rants.
2: <laughs> yeah, my dad's like, heard a lot of those that. I mean, there was a me. lot
1: of that in my house. I mean, there's a lot of that talking <laughs> with Andy. Like, everything's wrong with everything. And just like listening to him being like, mm hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. Right. Everything so, is wrong with everything. That's <laughs>
2: <it>. <laughs> uh, so, like, uh, one of the ways that I think we can talk about this a little bit more is the relationship and friendship dynamics in Gen Zers. Um, One of the most triggering questions I have literally ever asked any of my friends and had like a heated conversation for the next hour is can male and female teenagers be friends? (laughs) So I know that both of you probably have your opinions, but I'm kind of curious um, about that just as a face value for teenagers to understand a little bit more.
0: I'll go first. (laughs) No, I don't think that I think I think they cannot be friends. No. And um, usually you're going to find delusion on the side of the female where they're going to be like, we can be friends. Like I'm friends with five guys. And then all five of those guys have a crush on her and they all really like her and she can't figure it out. Even though I don't buy that either. Like I I, I (laughs) think she doesn't
1: want to know the truth.
0: Right. Yeah. And, and so I, 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 can they be friends? No, no. And should they attempt to be friends? No. I think that if you like a girl, you should ask her out. And if you don't, you can be acquaintances with her and you can be nice to her and you can, you can div- like have a distance relationship with her that's healthy, but you can't be friends. No, because you're just going to, you're going to develop these emotional bonds and ties to each other that, that are going to turn into somebody liking somebody and somebody doesn't like the other person. And then they're, everybody's going to get hurt and how it'll do, be unintentional.
2: How do high school friendships look, look like that? In public schools. So so like, I tend to agree with you, but like literally males and females are packed together in this school for eight hours and they might be sitting next to a guy. Like, do they just ignore them for the whole class because he's a boy and she can only be an acquaintance with him? Or is, is there a way to like, for a girl to understand how her words affect a guy or how her actions affect a guy to make that a more possible relationship?
0: Um... (laughs) <laughs> I I think like high school's really weird. Um, and high, like, yeah, it, like this is, you're right, they're there for eight hours with each other, and it is a complete disaster most of the time, and things are really dysfunctional. <laughs> I don't know. <sighs> That's a difficult question. I mean, I think that it's good for men and women to think about what they're saying and how they affect other people. And like, I think that's probably the biggest misconception. Like when Andrea and I will sit down with with different friends of ours and just talk about about these things. And like a girl will be like, like, you know, I went on a trip across wherever with a bunch of guys and like, it's all good because like we don't like each other. And that's weird. Like to me, I'm like, you went on a trip with a bunch of guys. That's there's that something is off here. I don't know. So like like <laughs> yeah. there, like there seems to be some sort of disconnect between like how you act and what you say compared to how people feel. Like understanding how that affects men and how men affect women in that ways. Um, in high school, you're like focused on all these other weird things because you're going through puberty and you like are mm-hmm. you're just a weird person that it's, it feels like <laughs> that might be asking too much. I don't know. But Nick might have a better answer for that.
2: Yeah. Before he says something, I like you and I have talked about this already, but the level of conscientiousness that I feel like teenagers uh, have of themselves is just so low. Yeah. And they also don't appear to care to gather more. Mm-hmm. Where it's like, okay, I should know what this phrase means to other people. Or like for me, right. I when I was younger, I would describe myself as a bubbly person or an extroverted mm-hmm. person, but it was just like glorified flirting, yeah. and like that would like torture every guy. Mm-hmm. But I was like, no, I'm just friends with everyone, yeah. and everyone just likes me because yeah. I'm just bubbly, and I just, mm-hmm. I and The just,
1: girls hated her. Yeah. Oh, yeah.
2: Right. And thank you for ruining my story. And some of the guys hated it. I'm sorry, Rachel. I didn't
1: realize you were coming to that. But
2: like, (laughs) yes. But like, because I was not aware about how every other girl around me was feeling, when I would act the way that I would, like just being happy and like messing around with all of these guys, like they literally destroyed my reputation, like within hours in these like small, compact events that we would do together and as i w- got very hurt and realized how my actions were actually affecting people and how the things i would say would affect people i was like okay maybe i shouldn't like hug guys all the time like that's that's just maybe one, not a great thing yeah or m- maybe yes. i shouldn't like look at them seductively all the time just because like i feel like it because when it Rachel, comes down how to how did it, you like, not
0: know Here's my question. And this I've wondered this for all of my life, all 22 years, how, how, how do, do you actually not know that you're doing this or are you like, it seems like all the evidence and all like logical thinking would lead to that. Like you're trying to get attention from guys or, or did you just, did you really just genuinely not know that this was happening around you?
2: I mean, like for me, I think it comes down to conscientiousness and just like not, thinking about it enough to care. Like for mm-hmm. me, I just thought I was the, I was the kind of girl that had more guy friends because I just was more yeah. a guy. I just had more masculine tendencies and oh. because of that, like I was just friends with guys and like that's mm-hmm. just what it was. But it wasn't that. She liked and arguing, all guys, she liked
1: competing, sure. she liked sports, right. she liked, yeah. you know.
2: Right, it it, it yeah. wasn't just like I want to make so. all these girls hate me and I just hate girls. It was I just hit it off with all these guys a mm-hmm. lot quicker. And I, but I didn't realize that I'm not a man and I will never be a man. Mm -hmm. And even though I have masculine tendencies, that does not mean in like any high heaven anywhere that I shouldn't pretend that I am one because Mm. whether we like it or not, females have an effect on men Mm. in almost everything that we do. And at least making an effort to be aware of how our actions affect them will make, in my opinion, this whole dynamic a lot easier. Yeah. But yeah, I'm curious on hearing what my dad has to say about that.
1: Yeah, you guys have said a lot and I have a lot of different responses to a lot of different things you've said. <laughs> let me let me try and narrow it down. The first thing is to say that different cultures are more sexually abused than other cultures in a culture wide ritualistic way. Oh yeah. So the American culture right now is extremely sexually is extremely objectified and sexualized and in making that our culture we are ritually sexually abusing everyone in our culture. Yeah. Including uh, and, and most detrimentally young men and women.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Right. Um, and I'm not just talking about pornography though that's a really large portion of it, right? Yeah. And the accessibility of that on phones, but also just like the way we advertise, just the way people talk about women, the way women Movies, feel like they have to look. Yeah. Right, everything. I mean, yeah. Everything yeah. says as a woman You are, this makes you valuable. This isn't, this is what will give you status. This is what will not give you status and so on. And in doing that, we are engaging in a culture wide form of ritualized sexual abuse to everyone. And it's especially disastrous to our younger people. So then when you get to a question like, can teenage boys and girls be friends? Well, that question might be different in central Kazakhstan, where there isn't electricity. Yeah. And where there isn't this culture wide ritual sexual abuse that is objectifying women and objectifying men in intersexualized way, promoting promiscuity and so on. Yeah. It might. Right. Does that make sense? Yeah. So part of it is that in American culture is a ritually sexually abused culture in that we have been taught to sexually abuse each other in ritualized, objectified ways. And it's horrific. And we just pretend it's not there. Every Can once in a while, me- a feminist or a Democrat or yeah. us or a religious person will say, hey, that's objectifying. But what we're, we are soaking in a culture of sexual abuse that that encourages us and teaches us how to sexually abuse each other and things like promiscuity and everything else. Yeah. And so so when boy meets girl in America in any kind of way and they, quote, try to be friends. You're talking about two kids who have been sexually abused their whole life. And then now they're going to have a intersubjective, godly, respectful relationship, right? They, they already have so much working against them that's not their fault yep. and that isn't biology's fault.
0: Right?
1: It's our culture's fault, right? Okay. The second thing I would say is this, is that boys, boys and girls or men and women can be friends, but – You can't ever take the sexual energy entirely out of a male-female relationship, right? as far as I can tell. I do think that as you grow in godliness, hopefully some of the damage of the sexualization done to us will be unworked. And we will come to a place where our our personalities and our sense of self-acceptance isn't rooted in our sexual acceptance. Mm -hmm. So that we aren't inordinately bonding with all the people of the opposite sex around us. So that it tames the energy in those relationships so that the sexual tension is manageable and even maybe manageable with ease such that men and women can be friends in reasonable doses in proper contexts. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? I do think it's particularly hard in adolescence, not just because kids have so much testosterone running through their systems, they're sexually curious and so on. They're they're practicing how to flirt and to show interest and all that. Mm -hmm. It's also wrapped up in personal acceptance. Are you personal justification are you a worthwhile person the most fundamental affirmation of worthwhile personhood is that another person would sexually bond with you Mm -hmm. and so when this is all going on it's not just like hormones and testosterone people wanting to get laid it has everything to do with (laughs) with whether or not I'm a worthwhile person Mm -hmm. and if you've got people who broadly culturally are experiencing abandonment Mm -hmm. sexual energy and tension is both a salve to the sense of abandonment do I belong to anybody and the sense of a lack of justification, am I worthwhile? And so codependent relationships that are incredibly unhealthy, that are full of promiscuity, that are the result of ritually sexualized and sexually abused people, in this context, at an age in which belonging and affirmation are incredibly important, is just a recipe for incredible difficulty. Does that make sense? And so because of that, what ought to be the capacity of human beings for men and women to be friendly and even have friendships with each other in reasonably proper contexts is made much more difficult. Mm-hmm. Right? Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. Yeah.
2: Um. I, yeah, I think like the next question I have, I think regarding Gen Z friendships, is I've experienced this. I know my friends have experienced this, but like I feel like teenagers call like all of their friendships toxic. It's like, oh, th- this person's toxic yeah. or whatever, or that person's acting this way, or they, they're ignoring me. But they still stay friends. I think it's really dumb. It makes me mad. I I wouldn't say I cut off the people that I felt were hurting my, my happiness and or discouraging my growth and my faith. But I definitely have less friends than I did a year ago or two years ago. Is there a way to help Gen Zers form more meaningful relationships and for them to last longer without them calling each other toxic or that their vibe is off.
0: Do you, are you saying that, um, it, it made you mad because they weren't actually saying it to the person they were kind of saying it behind their back?
2: Um, I, I think, I think it's like a constant practice in like Gen Z friendship that like everyone is just always trying to beat each other. Like one's supposed to be prettier or the other one's supposed to be better than the other one or something. But then if they do one thing, it's just an opportunity to be a victim and demonize the other person. Mm
3: -hmm.
2: And, but, but like, but then like the next day they just go back to like being surface level friends. Mm -hmm. I just think every relationship now is so, so surface level because Mm -hmm. all of their conflicts are, in my opinion. Like yeah. they don't actually have like a real conflict that they have to work through and apologize to one another. Like I have a really close sure. friend and the amount of times I've been like taken aback when she's sincerely said like, I'm really sorry I said that. I shouldn't have said mm-hmm. that. It like blew me away. I was like, wait, you're apologizing to me? Mm-hmm. Like on purpose? Like, we- oh, like we're not just forgetting about it and like snapping, mm-hmm. snapchatting each other the next day. Like there's actual mm-hmm. resolution in our friendship. Mm-hmm. Is there a way for teenagers to start cultivating those kinds of relationships, or how have you, Andy, have you done that?
0: I, well, I think it. I think that's probably the most difficult thing for me that I've had to like think about a lot and deal with a lot because I. When I think people are stupid, I just don't want to talk to them anymore, um, which is ironic because a lot of people think I'm stupid. So I, I don't know if that's what you're going to say, Nick, but I beat you to it. So it's, the, it's uh, the everyone
1: is stupid, but me problem yes. that younger people sometimes struggle with. Yeah. And also older people and yeah. also the people in between.
0: Yeah. Uh, no, and I know that I struggle with that <laughs> and I think it's. I, it is a serious problem, and it can be a serious problem when you have when you want to try to develop really a real relationships and friendships with people.
1: yeah, um, it especially highly dominant and highly conscientious people, and the worst people are the people who are highly conscientious and semi-dominant. Those people know what they think, they know why they think it they know they're right about thinking it, and they're dominant enough to be like everybody's stupid. Rachel, it falls into that personality category. I don't know if you do or not. I certainly do. Yeah. It's tough.
0: Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I don't know yeah. what I've found. It's probably, maybe a little bit, but basically, I think what I've learned is like just looking at the incompetence of the twelve disciples of Jesus over out over to Jesus' ministry with them, and that Jesus, he wasn't like this. This is getting too toxic, man. I got to let you go, Judas. Like, I'm not talking to you tomorrow. <laughs> um, right. Like, he he was he. Jesus was like very. It's this is extremely difficult because I'm even having difficulty right now with this with my own friendships in the church right now, because I want to just leave because I can't stand them sometimes. And I think that the only thing that keeps me around is is knowing that the amount the level of like frustration that I usually have with all of my friends is probably multiplied by like a billion um, when Jesus is thinking about how incompetent I am. And I, not, not that that's how Jesus is always thinking about me, but like I I disobey him all the time. And so I think like the way to develop good relationships is, is I think that if you go into a relationship on the basis of grace and understanding how the gospel has affected you in a way that you don't deserve, I think you're going to be much more willing and open to forgiving other people and asking for forgiveness and going into relationships with humility and saying like, like, yeah, I've had to be like, I think what I said was wrong. And even John, I've had to like talk to John about these things. Like, John, I think I, I've said something that was stupid or wrong. And like, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to do that. And it feels weird. Um, mm-hmm. But I I think sometimes in some relationships, people will be like, yep, that's weird. Like, don't talk. Stay away from me, you weirdo. Well, <laughs> But um, I think in the church, what you'll find a lot of times is that when you are the first person to show humility and grace, pe- that that's like in some ways contagious and people are going to respect that. I'm in, mean, and, and they're going to, I don't know. I think it's just going to open you up to, to like a more fulfilled life rather than a life that's just closed off from everybody who's stupid because right, you can find like, a reason right. for everybody being stupid. And, and Jesus could find a reason f- for you to be stupid, but he chose to not do that. So I don't know.
2: Right, Like th- that, that's a characteristic that I think is worth cultivating in everyone. Like, like, the like (sighs) gathering enough humility to willingly apologize to someone even though you might seem really vulnerable like an example of this is i had i was like fighting with my dad one morning and i was really mad at him for something it was probably my fault um i I was having a little trouble with authority a few years ago and he shut me down the conversation he's like no you're, you're just wrong you're my daughter you have to listen to me and we're done talking about this. And I was like, Oh, whatever. Like he's a jerk. And I like went to go play piano with Nicole and like practice or something. Mm -hmm. And I was in the middle of playing a song and he, he came into the room and he looked at me in front of Nicole and and he apologized. And he's like, I'm really sorry that I said that to you. I shouldn't have said it to you in the tone and I shouldn't have shut you down. Mm -hmm. Um, will you forgive me? And I was like sitting there like what in the world just happened? Mm -hmm. I almost started crying because I just, I felt Like he so deeply cared for me that he was willing to not only apologize to me, but in front of a work colleague and a family friend. Mm
3: -hmm.
2: So I I think realizing how impactful simply apologizing to someone is, is is really important for everyone to, Mm -hmm. to start working towards.
0: Yeah, no, I agree. I think some of the, some of the, the most like fulfilling conversations I've ever had have been people. (laughs) <laughs> like who have reached out to me and was like, Andy, I hated you for a long time, but I wanted <laughs> yeah. I, like, and people I didn't really know that well, but they're like, listen to your podcast. I hate, I hated you. I didn't like hearing your voice and I feel convicted. <laughs> and I like, this has happened. This has happened like yeah. several times. I hated your stupid, yes. stupid face, stupid face. And I, and like, yeah. but we would get coffee together and they'd be like, and I'm sorry about that. And I, and I, you know, like, I I'm, I usually start with like I understand how you could hate me. That makes a lot of sense, but like it, <laughs> it, it like it's. It is. It feels great. I don't know. It just feels amazing. Yeah. Cause that, that to me is like the, the, the church at work. And that's the reason why I think, I think if there's one way to get young people to, to want to be involved in the church, it's like set the tone. Like the Christian, the Christians, we need to like set the tone at the, uh, at the upper, like, like your, our parents, um, in set the tone in humility and forgiveness and grace and let that okay. trickle down. It's a little bit of tr- a trickle down economics, <laughs> trickle down Christianity or whatever, you know, because I think, yeah. I think that when younger people start to see that being played out, and the older people, they're gonna they're gonna see the the fruit from that, and they're they're gonna want that. That's what I think.
2: And even like ap- apologizing in person, like for me, I've experienced yeah. people like writing me letters, or yeah. like texting yeah. me, or yeah. something like that. But like the in person apologizing is like it's just yeah. it's so much better yeah. than any other kind of communication.
0: Yeah. So deal with your yeah, problems face to face yeah
2: right exactly um we've talked about adult friends and mentorship a little bit but i kind of want to talk about that a little bit more um for gen zers what is the ratio of adult friends to teenage friends that they should have and it can't be like two to zero
0: a million million to one (laughs) um adult friends to teenage friends i mean yeah it's good to have teenage friends I, i don't see anything wrong with having teenage friends you're gonna be bored. Like if Nick and I were like gonna hang out, that's. I just feel like we would. It might suck. I feel like we wouldn't have much yeah. like to to bond on because we're not in the same. Like to hang out and have fun together, um, and maybe like like a couple things, but like you know, Nick's not gonna want to go play like Call of Duty or something like that. Maybe you will, <laughs> but it's good to have people your age because right. at some point, all the older people are gonna die. And you got to deal with what's around you and <laughs> yep. that's your people who are your age. That's why I, I don't know. So I don't know a that's ratio. so deep.
1: <laughs> do you have anything what? to say about that, dad? Um, I mean, I have something to say about the last question. Yeah. I mean, I think they should be a mixture, right? I mean, when you say friends, yeah. you know, when you're a teenager saying that like a 26 year old or a 40 year old is your friend might seem yeah. weird, but. I think influence, you know, I I think that what we don't want is younger people to not have other influences Mm
3: -hmm.
1: that are godly that are because like, you know, you just get sideways with your parents in adolescence sometimes. And it's that's just going to happen. And having other adults that like, you know, are reasonable, you know, they're like your parents and you're like, what would it be like if I could talk to my parents when they were reasonable? Cause there's, we're so <laughs> sideways that like, I, I just can't get reasonable them, mm-hmm. but you know that you can talk to one of their friends mm-hmm. and you're not their kid. Yeah. And you're like, what do you think my parent is trying to do? And mm-hmm. they know. Mm-hmm. So like, yeah. I know if Rachel felt like for some reason I was like in a funk and she just couldn't get the good out of me. Like we have a, we have a friend in our, <laughs> our family named Luke, who's like my age, has kids that are a little younger than mine, who's similar to me in certain ways. And You know, she could ask him a question that she'd ask me and she'd get a pretty similar answer, Mm -hmm. you know, or she might be like, my dad says this, what do you think about that? And he'll be like, well, I I would, I I would say too, Mm -hmm. you know, or maybe he'd give some context. So I think that that's, I, but I, like, I think that that's true as all the way through into middle age, that you want people older than you who are a substantial part of your life that you learn from and hear from.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. Having the people who are outside of your family, like my mom Mm -hmm. and dad will always talk about how, um, like when I was a senior in high school, I stopped hanging out with my high school friends and I'd just go hang out with Vince. (laughs)
3: <laughs> and
0: that's like kind of yeah. weird. Cause Vince is like with 30 at the time and we like go to the pool together. <laughs> it's just kind of weird, but yeah. but Vin, like I really enjoyed it. And Vince was getting across the same values and things to me that my parents had tried, but they just couldn't get it through to me and Vince was doing it. So my parents are always like, we are so thankful for, for Vince and for John and for people who just could somehow get it through to our kid, that the thing that we couldn't get through to him. And I think that that's. And I loved it. I had such a fun time with Vince. He'd buy me Chipotle. I mean, that's all you, all you, you got to. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Um, Dad, did you have something to say about um, toxic relationships?
1: Yeah. I, th- I think that I think you're right, first of all, that we've given people, I mean, this is what Philip Reif calls psychological man versus moral man, right? Like, we modern people, especially Gen Z. They they have never lived in a world where people talked about themselves in something other than psychological terms. So they have been trained from like when they were able to talk about themselves to use words like anxiety rather than fear, or to use psychological words rather than moral or spiritual words, and it cramps your um, your imagination, you know. Mm-hmm. And so you think, oh, this relationship going isn't going well. Well, what are the psychological words I have I have to describe it, yeah. right? And so toxicity is one that's really commonly used, right? Right. And then you said something about it's when somebody hurts you, it gives you the opportunity to be a victim, right? Because they'll move to the psychological or sociological category of abuse. This is abuse, right? right? Rather than sin. Because abuse Uh. is one of those ambiguous words, right? Anytime we misuse somebody's teleological purpose, we sin against them, we're abusing them. That is, we're (laughs) using them for something other than what they were meant for,
0: Right.
1: right? right? But that's not the same thing as it being so acute that the only responsible thing to do is to break fellowship which is what abuse is supposed to mean.
0: You would almost say the that word. they're abusing the word abuse. You could say
1: <laughs> that. Yeah. That's how yeah. really good. Idea. So good like job. I would say so I think I think one of the things I would like to teach teenagers is to think in theological categories rather than psychological categories. Yeah. All right. And I think it,
2: like-
1: And I, here's the thing that I think they'll think is funny because I think they think psych- psychological categories are the most sophisticated ones. Mm. When really they're the most materialistic ones. And the most narrow ones, because all you once you use psychological terms to describe things, all you can think about is what is the just the ephemeral crap that's going on inside your head. And that's all you can think is real because that's all you have the language to describe. Mm -hmm. Right. When you say this is fear, I as a person must overcome this thing called fear rather than my nervous system is experiencing anxiety where you're a passive victim.
3: Mm-hmm. Even to right.
1: your own feelings, right? So like I think first of all, you need to diversify your language. you might need you might need to just kick the psychological language to the door because I think even though it's in some ways sophisticated, it's very deceiving. right it, and And then use theological and moral categories at least as much as psychological categories. Mm-hmm right and then I think like what you guys are saying I, I think that the opposite of a surface friendship has to be an intimate one and intimate relationships are bought with pain and confrontation
2: mm-hmm.
1: and perseverance right.
2: Mm-hmm. totally
1: right because if okay. you if you just say well this this person is toxic what you're doing is you're objectifying the person that person is not a knowing subject who is a, a person who exists for their own purpose and deserves to be loved mm-hmm. they're a person that is no longer functioning as the instrument you want them to be in your life and because you're not as a consumer getting out of them what you planned on mm-hmm. you are now going to return them and get your money back right right or dump them yeah or block and them that right? is a inhuman way to behave and it's making you it's destroying your humanity to do it so mm. i don't that doesn't mean you can't ever stop a relationship yeah but if you don't fundamentally respond to human beings differently in friendship than in most of your other relationships you're be, you're treating you're treating human relationships as economic relationships and they just aren't right. this mm-hmm. is the same right. logic that says where a woman says i don't want this thing in my uterus so i can i don't so i have therefore because i don't want it, i have no responsibilities to it so i can just have it dismembered and taken mm-hmm. out right, right. well yeah. no you have an inherent relationship because you're its mother
3: mm-hmm.
1: whether you yep. like it or not Friendship is a bond that's created that creates mutual responsibilities that you can't just be like, Well, I don't want. It.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Right. Does that make sense?
0: So, the, psych- the psychological language that you're talking about, like uh, the word abuse, I have a kind of a funny story that growing up, if we didn't eat our dinner, we didn't get dessert. Like, you know, and so yeah. one night I didn't eat my dinner because I didn't want to, and I was probably like five. And my parents afterwards, their our whole family was going to go to the store and get cookies. And, um, I, they were like, you don't get any cookies. And to me, that was like, that's the end of the world. So I started saying that my parents were abusive and I was like, you guys are abusing me. This is abusive, and my parents were like, oh really? And I was like, yeah, this is abusive. And they're like, all right, well, if we're being so abusive, we're gonna take you down to the police station, and we'll give you the opportunity to go tell the police that we're abusing you. And so they drove me to the police station, and I was like, yeah, let's go. <laughs> and then when we got there, I chickened out because I was like, I'm not going in there to tell them this. I knew it was ridiculous, but in some way, like in some ways, like just calling whatever you don't like abusive is really childish, and it's right. that's what kids do. And so I just thought that that was. I mean, that that was me, though. Like, I, I so I don't know. That's kind of a funny story that goes with that. But
1: yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I think a lot of kids in my generation told their parents stuff like that because their parents actually disciplined them. Yeah. And but this I mean, this yeah. is this gets at a whole other whole other set of things like we refuse discipline. I mean, the Bible says very clearly that people who refuse discipline are fools.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: And the word fool in the Old Testament doesn't just mean dumb. It means mm-hmm. morally corrupt. Mm hmm. Right. They don't know what they should know because they don't want to know it because they're morally corrupt. Mm -hmm. And therefore, the only thing you can do that person, you can't tell them wisdom because they don't want to know the truth. So the only thing you can do is discipline them. That's why the Bible says the rod rod or the whip is for the back of the fool. Mm -hmm. Right. It's not saying you have to whip people. It's just saying the only thing that cures that kind of foolishness because it's more moral corruption is pain. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. And so therefore, when kids act foolishly, which they often do, Mm -hmm. Discipline is necessary, right? But now we call that abusive because you can't do that, right? But the same thing is true even in a friendship with confrontation. Mm-hmm. Love yeah. requires in a friendship that you act in the good of the other person. But if the other person does something that's foolish or wicked,
3: mm-hmm.
1: the good of the other person is to confront it lovingly. Right. Seeking transformation and resolution. And if you don't do that, you, you're you not a friend.
3: Yeah. But if you're like, it's well, what do it's I get a- out of
1: it? And it's like nothing. They're right. not an object. They're a subject. Right. They, they're a person that exists for their own sake and you have to love them. Yeah. And if they, you confront them and they call you toxic. Well, that's, you know, sometimes that's the price you pay to be a loving person. It's
0: an act of of hatred to not say the thing that could help the person. And I think that's where people get it off. They're like, I'm loving them by not saying it. You're like, it is a severe act of hatred. Yeah.
2: Right. I mean, for like for me, I think confronting people is really great, especially in friendships, because like when when you do that and when you have the opportunity to be vulnerable, there's an opportunity for immense healing. But I also think when you're hurt and you have the opportunity to be a victim, it's really, really important to understand why you jumped to that conclusion. An example of that is like my friend and I were playing volleyball and her brother like told me that I wasn't nearly as good as her in front of like all of his friends. And I was like, oh, like she didn't stand up for me. That's so terrible of her. And I went home and I like complained to my mom about it. And I was like, she just, she's not a good friend. And I just am so angry. And after I like left and was like stewing or something, I was like, wait, I am so jealous of her. I just, I I can't handle the fact that even her own brother who probably worships her, like compliments her. And if I can't be a good enough friend to encourage her in that moment, and I can only be a victim and get angry that he didn't say that I was the best, Mm -hmm. I'm a terrible friend. And that I saw it as a pattern in so many of my relationships. Like if you're willing to realize why you felt the way that you did when someone was mean to you, aside from whether or not they should have said something or Mm -hmm. not said something that can be really, really beneficial.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and maybe like, like it, I mean, it could just be helpful too to like realize. I think that we can play things up in our heads. Like yeah. I, I'm thinking about that in terms of like the like you know, there's some sort of like competitive nature to that too. That yeah, your friend was better than you, and and you don't like that. Um, I don't know. There is something to – I don't know what I was going to say. Something to like a being honest with yourself, like how good am i right. versus how good do i want to be at this thing and is it okay if somebody says that I, they're not that they're better than me um i still struggle with that to this day Yeah, i, I don't like it when everybody yeah, anybody too, says man. anybody's better at anything it just pisses me off but that's <laughs> it's an important thing to to learn how to do i don't know how to do it yet but yeah
2: yeah even even another thing like in romantic relationships that i've found is like my ultimate rule sense man like since i've been like 12 or 13 was like my only job in this relationship, aside from trying to get them to like me, is if it ends badly, I do nothing either to assign blame or for them to blame me or talk bad about me. Like, even if they trash my name, like, it's not my responsibility to do go tell people what a horrible person they are. Mm-hmm. It's not my responsibility to, like, tell them to their face that they're terrible or block them or mm-hmm. be rude because that's not really my place. My place is to end the relationship swiftly. Like that's happened before so many times. And like the people have come back to me and been like, I was a total jerk to you and you mm-hmm. did nothing to deserve it. Mm-hmm. And it's not like a ha gotcha moment. Like you're a terrible person, but it's mm-hmm. a, they were able to take a step back after I handled it maturely mm-hmm. and were able to have a relationship again, even if it's just a resolution and then parting. Yeah. 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 Um, another question, like this is kind of more going into parenting and how we should parent Gen Zers. I felt this, I know my friends have, but how can teenagers who feel like their parents don't understand them um, communicate with their parents their frustration respectfully? Um, I had a really big problem with authority. And just yelling at my parents, telling them that they were wrong, that and correcting their parenting with my other siblings. Is there a way that teenagers can communicate to their parents either their depression or frustration or differing thoughts in a respectful way?
0: Well, I feel like I feel like if my parents listen to what I what I'm about to say, they're gonna I'm gonna get like roasted. But um, <laughs> the, I think. For me, I I realized after high school and after I moved out of my parents' house that they knew a lot more about what they were talking about than what I thought. Like I, I thought that they were just nuts. Like all the thing, all they were saying about responsibility and the real world and morality and what I should and shouldn't do. I thought that they're they don't like they don't understand me and like I'm unique and that stuff doesn't affect <laughs> me. And then I get out and I have to pay rent and I have to I have to work and I have to have some responsibility. And I realize that okay, wait, they they knew what they were talking about, and I'm the idiot who doesn't understand anything that was going on. And I I don't know if that's. I didn't ever struggle with like depression or anything like that. But a lot of it, I mean, we're probably similar, Rachel, in the way that like a lot of it is just just defiance and just I don't want to listen to this person because how can they know this better than me? And it turns out that if you've lived on the earth, you know, two times as long as I have, you probably know how to navigate it a little bit better than me. So I should just shut up and listen. Yeah.
2: (laughs) Right. Like for me, it was it was more wanting to control how they parented my other siblings like for the longest time I've always wanted to be an adult I'm like rent oh sounds great a real job oh finally let's like let's let's get a move on here um it's it's less been like grow up and it's more like back off like you and your sister are different or you and your brother are different or like this thing politically like I think you're a little off and just the constant butting heads like I have a lot of friends where their parents are conservatives and they're and like they are liberals and they're like and they just have lost all respect for their parents because of a political party they assign themselves with. Is there a way for parents to like address their kids in a loving way without just like shutting them down and telling them they're wrong? I think is what I'm also curious
0: Uh, about. Politically, I I don't know. Yeah, Nick might have a way better thing on this, but politically it feels like, uh, it felt like for me even, I had to experience some of the hardships of life or like just like the hardships of like, you know, nobody who's like 16 or 15 knows anything about how the economy works and like how important it is to put food on the table for your kids and like provide for a family like they, they have all that crap handed to them every day and they think that they can they think that it's just like it's just magic and if the and, and like they don't understand that if gas is five dollars that can take that can like that could destroy the grocery bill and then or something like that or whatever it ends up being or or the more like you can't pay your mortgage like they don't understand anything even close to that because they got everything handed to them on a silver platter which is why I think parents should tell their kids to go get a job in high school and like pay for their own car insurance and for their own car and for their own gas and things like that and stop giving your kids everything but uh, to some to some aspect like I mean, you do generally see a lot of liberals are... There are a lot of people are liberals in their early 20s and in high school and, and into their late 20s a little bit. And then as they get older and have a family and realize that they don't want the government stealing all their money, they <laughs> they turn a little bit more conservative. So I feel like part of that has to do more with like either you get it at a young age or you don't and you figure it out later. I don't know. I, I don't, uh, Nick, do you have anything else? I mean, do you
1: yeah I mean that I mean this is one of the reasons why humility is one of the central ethics of the Christian message right is it's really hard to I mean we have all our beliefs and we want to believe stuff that confirms them and if you were go through the world that way you don't learn much you know Mm -hmm. and it's your parents, when you're a teenager, your parents always know more than you think they do, yeah. you know? And so, um, but I, th- yeah, I just think engaging in practice, Yeah, you, know, you just got to practice,
3: mm-hmm.
1: you know? For and teenagers, I also, yeah. For, I think for teenagers you need to practice. I think for adults, I think for a lot of adults, you, you need, to, adults need to just listen a little bit longer. Yeah. Make sure you really understand what they're saying. And don't assume that it's the same caricature you heard on like Fox News or or MSNBC or like whatever. Even if it's thing. really dumb. Yeah. And then, yeah. you know, and then so it, it really is an art to ask teenagers questions. It'll help reveal what you think without it being so obvious that you're leading them. You know, right. like so. in some ways you, you can't just ask them leading questions like a lawyer. You have to just ask the questions you would ask. You know, I wonder this. And sometimes they'll talk themselves right to it. And sometimes you'll, get, you'll clarify what they think and then you can say, that's interesting. I, I look at it differently. This is how I think, this is what I think of why, you know, but like, you can't, you just can't force anybody's will. I mean, they're going to think what they decide to think. Mm-hmm. How and can, how so- can,
2: how can parents love them when they like vehemently disagree with their kids about something, whether it's political or even like temperamental how can, how can you communicate love to your kid or your teenager, even if you disagree?
0: I feel like it depends on the kid to some capacity, but for what my parents did for me and we didn't disagree politically, um, but, but like in t- just in how I was living my life and we disagreed in how that should be done. Um, yeah. and I, I've always said this, I thought my parents actually did a really good thing at that point, like we, we were getting into arguments all the time. My senior year of, of high, junior, senior year of high school, just arguments about every and anything I could possibly argue about. And it was, it was negatively affecting every part of our family home life. And my little brother, he didn't ever want to be around me and my mom and dad, like it, it just, it was just a complete mess because I, I hated everything that anybody told me no matter what. And so, it, it, for me, it got to the point where my dad was like, he gave me the ultimatum that I, I, he's like, I need to get out of the house for the next 24 hours, or I needed to go to F free, given and free at high point, um, which is a weird ultimatum, but like he basically, and I obviously chose to go to F and F, which ended up changing everything about my life. And, but like the, the, I don't think that, (laughs) see, like when it comes to an entire lifestyle, I felt like I wasn't going to change at all. And my parents knew that. And I don't think there's anything wrong with being like, you're 17, 18 years old. You need to get out of here. But that might be too. Mm -hmm. Like people that's like, again, it's like, it's like what we were just talking about. If you, how loving is it to continue to enable somebody in their sin? I don't know. I don't know what the answer to this stuff is because maybe I'm way too hard on, I'm thinking way too harshly. Um, And I understand dynamics between parents and children are, are really like, very difficult to do stuff like that so i don't even i don't even know what that would be like but it helped me when my parents were like you got to get out of here if you don't change because it it was like that then it got real it was like all right i'm not prepared you know, know.
2: yeah um i think i like the question for me also like regarding that is like where is the line between giving them assurance that you're not going to leave them and not abandon them but also consistently giving giving them loving correction to help them better themselves where it's like i still love you you can tell me almost anything like anything you can say f you to my face but i'm still gonna love you and i'm not gonna abandon you and you still need to unload the the dishwasher or you still need to clean your room or you still need to whatever what's what's the line Uh, between and
1: you're in trouble for behaving that disrespectfully right but i still love you
2: yeah, how can that? Because I how think how a teenager I don't think that?
1: a teenager should be swearing at their parents. And I think that a teenager should face discipline for doing so. Yeah. But I still think the kid needs to feel like you love them.
0: Yeah.
2: And what discipline have you found with your own <laughs> children that has achieved that and not achieved that?
1: Yeah. I I I mean, I, I don't know that I've done much in the teenage years, Rach. You may know as know the answer is better than anybody. I mean, I, I figure that it, I, I feel like when, I feel like most of the stuff that I've done that has helped with that I did way before they were teenagers. You know, I tried to show I respected them. I tried to demand that they respect me and be respectable as well as respectful. And and then I, I made clear the parameters of our relationship. Yeah. And I tried to treat them with respect and give them choices that were appropriate to their development. But I don't know. And I tried to teach them the scriptures and like how we should treat each other and how we should speak to each other and how the tongue was to be used and all that kind of stuff, you know?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think for me something that helped. I mean, I I tend to do a lot of self-correction and I'm a perfectionist. So I'm I'm very I care a lot about the the, the little details. But when I was probably like fourteen or fifteen, maybe even last year and I was 16, like I just love to argue about everything. And I just love to give my unsolicited opinion about how people were wrong. And my mom would tend to shut down just because she wasn't super great at arguing, like in real time, she would just get flustered. <laughs> my dad would sit there and just argue with me for hours. And w- w- we probably wouldn't really get anywhere, like, but he would just sit there and argue with me. And in the time when I was like most frustrated, most depressed, like most angry, at everything. He was willing to sit there and just let me be angry at someone and also be my authority. I think is, I mean, I don't know how much longer you want to spend talking about this, but what is the difference between a parent being a child's friend and a parent being a child's authority? And is there a middle ground? Because I, I think there is a middle ground, but I think that especially now, as we are talking before about discipline, parents don't want to like, actually discipline their kids all i want to do is be their friend and then you get the i'm i'm dropping you but you can't like, mm. you can't block your parent or drop them right so how, like how can you be an authoritative friend to your kid
0: well Andy, i think like, it's
2: yeah you can
0: oh i was just gonna say it starts i think it starts from the parent's perspective of knowing that they're not going to always be able to discipline their kid like when their kids will move out and build their own family they don't have any right to discipline them in that way and so you're still going to have some sort of relationship with them and there's going to be some sort of hierarchy authority to some capacity. But I feel like that authority would be more like, it feels like that would be more like a, a respect authority rather than like mm-hmm. a, a parenting authority, which I guess is a respect. I don't know. But, but, but the bottom line is I, I think that you can be like me and my dad are, we're, we're friends. Um, we talk about everything. We talk about politics and theology and, and we debate things and argue with each other. And we are interested in basketball and we watch sports and, there and, and also like, but there has been times in my family, like Nick knows that like, maybe, maybe my dad has gone too far. I mean, we had to talk about this before I got married or like just in, yeah, we, we're still pretty dysfunctional as a family. I don't know. We're, we're still trying to figure it out, I think. But like there's some sort of dynamic that like, I don't know, Nick, what, what would you say like w- between me and my dad's situation where we had to come in before I got married? Did you feel like that was my dad trying too hard to still be the authority? Or did you feel like that was me in so, or in some ways like doing something wrong?
1: I'm trying to think of something more productive to do than to determine who was right and wrong in a past counseling session that the audience is not privy to. <laughs> um, I, I, I think that yeah, con- I think what yeah. you're trying to share with people is this idea that like as you get older, parents don't have the same authority. And so but they still have a lot of influence. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. yeah. And
1: they're negotiating that, right, in a way that has to increasingly respect your autonomy, mm. but also recognize that the truth is still the truth. If yeah. there is a truth, yeah. right. And wisdom is still wisdom in that. Yeah. You, you have, you, you'll never have less than the responsibility of a friend towards your child. Yeah. Right. You cannot, you can't be anything less than a faithful friend. That's the, the, the most, that's the minimum it could ever be. And the responsibility of a friend is to tell what truth you think your friend requires of you from you for their good. Yeah. yeah. And so I think that, I think that and I think this is one of the one of the dynamics that the whole culture is struggling with in what ex, to what extent are we in solidarity with each other and in what to what extent do we need to respect the subsidiarity of each other right the solidarity is how we are all responsible and have to take responsibility for each other and carry each other's burdens and subsidiary is we're responsible for our own stuff. And stuff should be handled at the most local possible level in my own life with my wife and myself at my home, mm-hmm. not in everybody's business. And so increasingly the the younger adult is building their own subsidiarity. How am I an individual? How am I responsible for myself? What am I going to do with oh, my life? Yeah. Yeah. And the parent is trying to respect that. Right. But there is a, there is a solidarity in terms of what's the truth and what's <laughs> wisdom, and what will be best for you. And, Right. Like I'm still connected to you in that way. Right. So I think yeah. as a parent, what I'm trying to do is to say, okay, Rachel is going through something And what, to what extent am I in solidarity with her? That is, I'm going to share what truth I know because it belongs to her because I belong to her.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: And to what extent is it, is, is there a subsidiarity dynamic that this is her issue? She has to deal with it
3: mm-hmm.
1: and yeah. it, she's going to bear the consequences and she has to face the difficulty. Mm-hmm. And I not only can, but shouldn't, Usurp that.
0: Yeah.
1: Right. And so I think that there's a certain kind of, especially with conservative Christian parents, there is a kind of authority we want to have over our kids so that we can help them. But there is a transition where we where we need to let them do stuff that we can't infantilize them. And so that transition is difficult. Mm-hmm. It's, it's difficult. Yeah. And the only thing I know of to try to make it better is as your kids are getting older <sighs> to try to find – experiences of independence that they can engage in where the costs aren't catastrophically high. Mm -hmm. So they have, that's one of the reasons why I do like kids playing sports because sports, you just fail constantly Mm
3: -hmm.
1: and you're learning real life lessons about interpersonal skills and submitting to authority and mastering something difficult, but it doesn't really matter. Not really on the grand scheme of things. Right. right and so sports are a really good opportunity and there's there are other versions like right now Rachel is starting to lead more in the youth group at our church right and mm-hmm. on one level that's just great developmentally for her she's really doing leading hopefully that will bear real spiritual fruit and in another sense who freaking cares like she's she gets to practice yeah. leadership in a context where she's going to learn a bunch of stuff about leadership that she's going to use later in her life a thousand times mm-hmm. and this is just where she's going to learn it Does that make sense? So I think that there will be fruit to her ministry in the youth group, but I'm more interested in it being a place where she can learn how to lead and be independent. And then I can try to give her advice. So I think that dynamic between influence and authority and, and tapering it off as best you can as a parent is important. And then you got to let your kids face some of their own difficulties, Mm
2: -hmm. you know? Right.
1: I mean, I I have a freshman in college, mean, we've been doing this all year, you know? Mm Mm-hmm.
2: What, sure, okay, this so, is her
1: problem, not ours. This is her problem, not ours. You know?
2: Yeah. What's So, like, we are a family of leaders, the mm-hmm. Gibsons are, and I also have a lot of friends that aren't leaders at all. What is the difference between raising a child to be independent and raising a child to be a leader? Because I wouldn't be doing the things I am in my youth group if I didn't volunteer myself to do so. I think yeah. that there might be a di- like a difference in parenting for just a child that you want to be eventually independent mm. and a child that wants to be a leader.
0: Well, I'll start by saying, well, our family dynamic is a little interesting because um, like my two brothers aren't there. Well, one of them adopted and one of them's a half brother. Um, he's got a different dad. And so none of us are very alike in any way. And, and I would say that I'm, I'm more different than, both of them. I, n- neither of them are leaders and they don't listen to this podcast. So they won't get mad at me for, for <laughs> saying that, but they're not leaders and they're, they're more of the independent style. I, I think like from my perspective, there was, my, my mom's very leadership based and my, my dad can, my dad can be as well. Um, okay. <laughs> I don't know how to do the independent thing. And honestly, I, I don't, I'll just say things that kind of helped me in, in, because I don't think that there's any other person my age that I know that has, (laughs) it's just going to just sound cocky, but I don't care. That has the leadership capacity that I do. And so it was very difficult for me, especially in high school that like people looked up to me who are already my age and there's just weird dynamics to influence and things like that, how much influence I had on people and things like that, that I didn't know how to deal with because nobody taught it to me. And the best a thing that i had ever experienced and i don't think that it was directly from anybody i felt like it was from from god that like he basically taught me after high school um on my trip for for a college age ministry a, a kind of like a missions trip that like i just should not be in leadership at all no matter what um <laughs> until until i'm ready so 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 and he actually vince said this to me in some way he was like I'll, I'll explain it this way. And he said that there's like people in the Christian faith that are tanks. And then there's people that are just soldiers. And he was like, you know, tanks, are, they'll make the most impact, um, but they can also do the most um, damage for your own side. And, and, and Vince was like, Andy, you're a tank, but you're a tank who's all jacked up and you've got holes and like you're shooting in the wrong direction and you're killing your own people and you're like, you're just a disaster. And he's like, you got to go back into the shop and you got to get fixed up and then you can go out and you can do a lot of great things. I think that was one of the most helpful things that somebody said to me because it basically was like, stop trying to be in leadership because you're just going to hurt a bunch of people. Um, right. And, and so I think I've done that. I, I don't lead in any capacity at all. Um, I mean, people might think that this is some sort of leadership thing, but most of this is Nick telling me that I'm saying things that don't make sense. So I don't <laughs> think that that's leadership, but uh, I, I don't, I think that for a lot of people who want to be leaders, I think the first thing that you got to do is learn how to not be a leader and learn how to be yeah. humble.
1: Yeah, I think that's true. Yeah, learning how to follow really well is one of the best first steps to becoming a leader, I think. So I, I think that there's, there's a just – because when you think, think about teaching people to be leaders, I want to make a significant distinction, right? I think there, there's two ways to think about a leader. Uh, one is a leader is somebody who has charisma. That is a person who operates the world in such ways that significant groups of people are willing to follow them. And then there's leaders who have passion about something and feel responsible that it should be good. Mm -hmm. And so they're willing to serve in some area because the thing itself matters. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: Does that make sense? And sometimes people have both.
0: You would say that, or I'm just wondering, you would probably be more like the second in -hmm. the church. Yeah. 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 Like, I, well,
1: I think I I think I am more of the second. Though yeah. I think I have a reasonable share of char- of charisma mm-hmm. in certain contexts. But there are some people that just like any people, they just the way they enunciate yeah. their R's, people will follow them. And then there's <laughs> other people who, um, they just care. They they care a lot. And yeah. so I think you can raise your kids to care about things that matter, mm-hmm. so that they'll be passionate about things mat things that matter. And that won't necessarily make them a leader. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, but they will take responsibility for something, even if it's just a family or a job, or their own cleanliness. You know, they'll, they'll be like, "Look, th- things that are ma- that matter, we should be responsible for." And I'm passionate about. Mm-hmm. And then, to the extent to which they are called up into leadership or have opportunities to lead, then they can seek to lead people towards a good. Mm-hmm. But people with charisma often don't do the work of studying and figuring out where they're taking people, people will just go. So it doesn't much matter where you take them. It'll be fine, you know, but it really does matter where you take them. Yeah.
0: So, Which means you got to have, you got to have your own, like your own compass intact. You got to like know (laughs) what the goal is. And that's, that's extremely difficult because you have to be somewhat healthy to do that.
1: Yeah. Your moral capacity in your character has to be stronger than whatever your top level of leadership could be. Yeah, I actually, actually talked right. to Nicole about this just this morning. You know, I was like, we were talking about a church that has kind of imploded. And I, you know, I said, you know, Nicole, we, you know, it's all well and good that High Point has done pretty well over the last 10 years. But like, what would happen if like our church in like three or four years was a church of 5000 people? Like, what would that do to me? Like, would I stay on? course with the values or would I get focused on like being the pastor of the big church and making it even bigger. And like, mm-hmm. is my character ready for a, like a larger scope of success? Because part of the reason, like if God loves me and, and wants to save me, he might not be willing to give me stuff I can't handle. Cause it'll, he knows it'll destroy me as a person. Mm-hmm. And so I, so I'm, I need to grow character wise so that he can increase the scope of my leadership because it's it would be a a huge grace for him to make me a failure if it saved me Mm
2: -hmm. right yeah i mean i i think a big part of learning to be independent is also learning yourself and figuring out who you are as a person independently from your parents and something that helped me with that actually was covid being able to drive being able to go and just like sit alone and just understand why i thought that girl's skirt was cute Or why I choose to order a green tea boba tea instead of a drip coffee. Like the little Mm -hmm. things that matter, just taking myself out on dates, like going and getting Asian pho and just sitting there eating it alone, reading a book. Because Rachel Rachel
1: dated herself a little bit during COVID.
2: Yeah, man. And like, it's like, I cannot tell you how much pushback I got from other teenagers telling me how weird I was wanting to go out in public alone and like eat a meal by myself and read a book to
0: God forbid only, you don't want to talk to people who, who are people forbid. of our generation. Yeah.
2: Right. And like the issues though, is that like when you do that, you also discover a lot of sadness and a lot of hurt and frustration from mm-hmm. the past. And I, I think talking a little bit briefly cause we're, we're a little bit out of time about mm-hmm. kind of like the depression and suicide of Gen Z and mm-hmm. Either why it's different now or why kids just label some sadness as depression or why some kids don't realize they have it until Mm -hmm. people just label them with being angry. I think I was labeled just an angry person for a while and I didn't realize it was because I was repressing a lot of sad Mm -hmm. things that happened in my life and not addressing them because I didn't know myself.
0: Yeah. I, I'm the same way too. I, I don't get like real depressed or sad. I get extremely angry yeah. and um, mm-hmm. I've had, I've had friends like ha- who have, well, I've one that killed that did commit suicide. He killed himself a uh, mm-hmm. year or two ago. And then I have, I have one who, who almost did. And I, I, I got plenty of friends. And so I feel like when we're talking about suicide and, and depression, this can get, it can get like, People can get really frustrated with you if you say the wrong things, but I, I'm right. I think that I think that the, some of it goes back to Nick and I did a podcast on wisdom where we talked about um, deep focus and hyper focus and mm-hmm. what I have found to be the case in my life and some of my friends' life was that once they were fo- like once they were forced to in some way um, deeply think about their life. They started to get, we started to get depressed and angry and all went all over the place because there wasn't something in front of our face that could just take our attention away from the fact that we hated ourselves. We hate our lives and we hate everybody around us. And we don't know why we can't explain why it just is what it It, is. Right. Yeah.
2: And you could possibly do the work to maybe try and fix that.
0: Yeah, but it looks like such an uphill battle that right. I would just much rather hate everybody else than deal with the fact that that I I'm the, the problem. Um, yeah, I, I think that like the the best way to like this is like the big mystery for our generation is is how to get people out of that because basically everybody's in it. I, either how to get people out of the depression and anger, the depression and anger, or get people into the um, realization. That, and that things aren't what they have lied to themselves for so long. Like things aren't so great in their life that they actually have some serious problems that they need to deal with. And I have right. no, I don't really know how to get them there. I feel like that that's something that you just have to pray for people and you have to pray that God would, would work in people because it, there's so many reasons why I was angry. Like I'm still angry. Like there's so many reasons I can't, it's like, like, yeah. because I grew up in a mixed family and there's, um, A bunch of alcoholism in my face like i don't know there's like a billion reasons and you have to just keep sitting down and thinking about it and when rachel and i were talking on the phone about this podcast i said when i was in high school i used to just sit down i know a lot of people when they go um and they take you know they, they poop they um they have their phone out the whole time I I would just sit there and just think about what was going on in my life all throughout high school and not because I like wanted to be a good Christian for it or anything like that I just <laughs> was like I want to be like a couple steps ahead of my peers and that I'm thinking about what's going on around me and it that was like really helpful for me. Um, just to sit there and think about what was happening in, in real life. I didn't know why it was beneficial, but I just enjoyed doing it. And I thought that it was really helpful because it helped me understand the relationship dynamics that I had with different friends and and different people in my class. And that was helpful. But, but when it comes to like getting people to recognize that things aren't so great and amazing, I don't know how to do that. I think you just have to pray for people and, and pray that God will open them up to, to their own destruction and sin. I don't know.
2: Yeah. Dad, what do you think?
0: So I
1: think that there's a lot of things contributing to depression in contemporary people. I think that some of it is predictable and curable. So for, so for example, I think that a lot of people, a lot of their stress is coming to them through their phones
3: yeah.
1: and that's just going to be a terrible decision. If you want to be free of that, you got to shut that stupid thing off and delete some of the apps on it and stop filling your head full of the things that make you anxious. That includes um, not just like pictures of people that give you body dysmorphia or jealousy creating, but also like attention to the news. I think there's a lot of activistic news that is trying to get you to get angry and do something that is creating anxiety. And I think for a lot of people, shutting off. All of their social media and all of their access to the news um, would actually do a lot. I also think for a lot of boys, but this could be girls too, they need to shut off and get free of their video games um, because their video games are actually a coping mechanism.
0: You know what I thought the other day, Nick? It probably would be helpful for some of these kids to go hunting. Like to actually – you know, kids (laughs) who like love the video games that are like shooting games. Like, I don't like know, the, like, like I'm going to go hunting this year for the first time in my life. And I'm super excited about it because I get a, it's like a competition. I don't know. I felt like that, that might even, be helpful. Well, for
1: them. Western hunting, especially. I think you'll really yeah. like Western hunting because, but even, even like deer hunting, when you sit in a deer stand. Yeah. Um, it, But like, it, it, it's a struggle at first. See, this is part, one of the things that I think I'm, I'm really, I really struggle with. And I struggle with this in parenting with my own kids too, is there's a number of things that are incredibly human that, um you have to kind of fight to learn to enjoy yeah and if you do it then it like like and, and one of them is being outdoors <laughs> yeah like the average person can't stand more than about 2 degrees of temperature fluctuation and that's not how it's supposed to be you know what i mean yeah. um, so like going like sitting in the a crisp morning air where there's still mist and it's cold on your face Mm -hmm. and you're sitting there in the dark and you start thinking about your life and you're, you know, like that experience is like, it's so much better than playing a video game or whatever, but you have to learn, To come into taste for it i think there's also the issue of us just us forgetting about what it means to be a person for a lot of people they believe that depression is just a function of anxiety but anxiety comes from somewhere too and it's not just your neurology Mm -hmm. like it has to do with like what do you think you are what makes for a person what what makes your life meaningful when you look at research on happiness the four most important things that people that that People think produces happiness reliably. Uh, that is not just strictly temperamental and neuro- neurological. It is do you have a worldview that explains your existence and suffering? Do you belong to people that you share your life with? That is, do you have something like a family? Are you in community? Do you have two to three friends that like you and have an expansive sense of the self? And four, do you have work? Do you have something that you do that you really believe improves the lives of others? Mm-hmm. Now, if you sit down with the average depressed person and you go through that list of four things three of them or four of them are often problematic in their lives. Right. And instead of doing those four things and pursuing those four things, they're pursuing salves or, or diversions like social media, mm-hmm. video games, eating drama, you know, producing drama in shallow friendships, Yeah, gossiping, all kinds of these like deflectionary mm-hmm. pursuits that make you weaker, but make you feel better for a little bit.
3: Yeah.
1: And, I mean, so it, 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 and part of this is – this gets back to people like Jordan Peterson trying to make this clear is life is tragic and difficult, mm-hmm. right? And this gets back to the difference between progressivism and people like Thomas Sowell, which <laughs> the difference between like the constrained view of the human person, that human life is difficult, tragic, and and like, it's just hard versus the mm. unconstrained view that like, if everybody would just vote for the right person, we'd have a utopia tomorrow and everybody would be happy and could do whatever right. they wanted. Yeah. And it turns <laughs> out that a human being, be, you are a human being. You also have to go through a painful developmental process to become the kind of human being you were meant to be. Mm. And it's a terribly difficult thing. And if you're willing to do it, it'll produce dividends for generations and ultimately for eternity. Yeah. Yeah. And if you won't, you can't become what you are meant Mm -hmm. to be. You cannot forge character that will lead to virtue, that will lead to holiness, Mm -hmm. that will produce loving, godly, productive, blessed happiness.
0: Yeah, I think that the motivation that you're just talking about is like for me that, that I think about is like in developing my character and developing myself in my faith and learning and learning more about theology and about Jesus and about how to live my life and, and trying to just be conformed more to Christ. The, the, the motivation is that like the, that's going to leave a legacy. That's not gonna leave a little leave a legacy for Christ, but it will last way longer than my own life. Like that's gonna, that's gonna outlast me like tenfold into the future. And like like, what's going to be created and built out of that is is so much more than I can even imagine. Like I, that just yeah. that just gets my my brain stimulated and in going. Because yeah. the
1: I, hardest thing in the world is to produce being.
0: Yeah, like
1: to actually like become what you were made to be is enormously difficult, and it's but it's the most important thing, and I think emotionally, the most rewarding thing
0: Nick, people can do. Lil Lil Wayne. Has, a, has a, a lyric that says, it's hard enough being human, let alone a human being. And I think that that hit the nail on the head. Yeah. We should have Lil <laughs> Wayne on the Optif Theology podcast.
1: He <laughs> clearly has something to say. Yeah. Definitely.
0: Yeah.
2: yeah. um, I, Like, I agree with all of that. One of the things that I have heard from Gen Zers my age is that, like, the kind of air quotes, like, depression that Gen X and boomers experienced is like a different kind than millennials and Gen Zers experience. Like be, maybe mm-hmm. because they're social media or because it's like a hyper-sexualized culture, how can one parent understand the kind of sadness and frustration and anxiety their kids are feeling? Or how can we concretely differentiate them in our minds?
0: I feel like the, the I'm going to try to... Um, di- I'm gonna say what I think that the two different the two different generations versions of depression is and and see if that's correct. Um, I feel like like Gen Zers and Boomers are more like their depression is more circumstantial. It's based on like the things that happen in their life that are very difficult that that have affected them in very negative ways that create depression. And I think for millennials and Gen Zs, it's literally them not knowing why they they are here and why they exist. Whereas it feels like Gen, Gen Xers and boomers have an idea of why they're here, but just hard times come. I mean, I think that that's why there's less Gen Xers and boomers who actually go through with committing suicide compared to yeah. millennials and, and Gen Z. Because... Yeah. yeah, go ahead. I remember
1: hearing... Um, I think I think one of the first people I heard say this was Ben Shapiro, but I've heard it confirmed by other people since, that... Um, that suicide statistically is far more a Western industrialized educated phenomenon than it is a poor phenomenon. So like fewer people who can barely find food to eat, kill themselves than educated Europeans or (laughs) Japanese.
0: That doesn't surprise me.
1: And so what, what it, what it tells us is there's something about depression and suicidality that is rooted in the human condition that is, that functions on principles other than just like a just neurology because there's plenty of people who have the same neurology as us all over the world who aren't killing themselves and even aren't even suicidal. Right. right? And it has, so it has something to do with like our environment, our context, our beliefs, our worldview, our formation of ourselves, the way we, they, we, we, we create our communities and so on. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? And I think that's really, really important to reckon with. And I don't see my psychologist friends reckoning with it, they know there's something wrong, but they don't know what it is. And so they're like, well, what can we do? Oh, we, we just have to give them antidepressants and, and do whatever yeah. behavioral therapy or whatever we can do because we can't fix the macro problem. But that's the problem. And the church, I think, needs to say, right. no, no. What we're doing is we have sexualized our kids. We have commodified our kids, which is even worse. That's why they all feel abandoned because they feel like they're commodities and objects. So they haven't been treated like subjects, which is why they don't feel anybody treats them like a subject, i.e. they've been abandoned as subjects. That is, they feel and they're angry about it and they're hurt. Mm -hmm. They don't. We have not given them a transcendental worldview that makes sense of meaning, purpose and suffering, much less their humanness in a stable way, such that between 20 and 35 percent of Of younger people consider themselves non-binary, LGBTQ, like in ways that are like, I mean, those things as phenomena are less than three percent of the population. People who are Mm -hmm. like profoundly predisposed to LGBTQ orientations Mm -hmm. is less than three percent. So if you're getting 20, 25% as much as 30% in some places in California, that's that's not the biological reality of LGBTQ orientations, that is an ideological queering of the nature of what it means to be a human being.
0: Especially it, because a lot of those kids are choosing their sex before they've even had sexual in- interactions with another person. So
1: Yeah, for a lot of the people, it's before puberty. Yeah, which before puberty. But, yeah. Like, but part of the issue is like, if, if you've got a, a creature as complicated as a human being— that requires a culture to have a sense of themselves, and then you feed them a commodified, sexualized view of themselves in which they have no transcendental meaning. They have no doctrine to make sense of suffering. They don't understand community. They are angry with their sense of belonging, and I could go on and on and on. The idea that like they aren't all suicidal is crazy to me.
0: Yeah, right. Yeah, well, they I mean, will I, be soon. I don't. I don't yeah, doubt that our generation. I mean, is what is. Walker
1: Percy wrote in "Lost in the Cosmos." I think in 1982. And he has a section on suicide in it. He's like, if you feel suicidal, are you a somebody who is suffering from mental health problems and needs some help or B, the only sane person in the room? Right. Like, would anybody who looks at our world and feels about our world the way we've been taught to feel about it, be suicidal? Are you are you sane for being suicidal? Yeah. And he talk, he like talks about like like one of the Roman leaders who like just didn't want to live anymore in this society. And he had any committed suicide. He's Mm -hmm. like, maybe you're right. And I'm not saying it's right to commit suicide or that anybody's right to actually commit suicide. But I think people can be taught such a wrong view of the world. Mm -hmm. And for that view of the world to be so substantiated in their person psychologically that the level of hurt, anger, sadness, and emptiness that they feel Mm -hmm. is catastrophic. And so they want to die or they don't want to live. They don't actually want to die. They have no idea what dying is, but they don't want to live. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Jordan Peterson did a bit on like depression when he talked about like how he deals with like teenage patients and that he's like, okay, you've told me that you're depressed. Let's fix everything else in your life before we address something that's chemical, that is by definition, a chemical imbalance in your brain. So do you have a good relationship with a good relationship with your parents? Do you have a job? Is your room clean? Things that they can change to build a healthy, loving, happy environment for themselves before he actually prescribes medication. And Mm -hmm. I actually think that maybe the difference between teenagers and or like Gen Z and millennials and Gen X and boomers is that not making your bed or having a bad family dynamic did not take away from being happy. And that like, that didn't even become something that someone was depressed about because they could go skate on a lake or they could go hunting with friends or play basketball, like in the middle of a city mm-hmm. that it it wasn't, the, those sad things wasn't the area of focus in their life. That instead, now it's like, it's like an identity. It's like, hi, mm-hmm. my name is Rachel and I'm depressed. It's yeah. like my second yeah. personality. Right. and. It, it's almost like you put that responsibility on your friends.
0: It's become that trendy like, in some capacity, and right. that's like like that's like people don't like people think that's messed up if you say that, but well, in a lot of in a lot of ways, depression has become a trendy thing where everybody's like i'm not yeah. I'm not well and it's like that's not something one it shouldn't be something that's trendy in the first place because it's a serious thing, but
2: right or even or even like the hyper focus on minuscule sad things like yeah. Like my, I just had an argument with, with my dad. Oh, he hates me. Our relationship is shot. Like yeah. he will never love me again. Yeah. And catastrophizing. Also, mm-hmm. what was that?
1: Catastrophizing.
2: Right. They're like. Yeah.
1: And then they then they're also, because there's so much unhealthiness in the cattiness and gossipiness of all the relationships, yeah. they'll get drawn to what psychologists call hypervigilance everybody's right. about to cut you at every minute and everybody's yeah. about to explode. Yeah. And so people are like, so you oh, to have see. your
0: defenses up all the yeah. time. Yeah. Right. And
1: so people yeah. are like, Oh, this is a psychological problem. No, it's yeah. not. It's right. a moral yeah. problem. Right. We've taught, we haven't taught people not to gossip. Yeah. And so, <laughs> and we, or to be brutal with each other. And so they are. Yeah. And so people are naturally mm-hmm. hypervigilant. Well, hypervigilance mm-hmm. like functions like anxiety because it's a form of anxiety. It drains yeah. your system and leads to depression. And you're like, well, right. then they need pills. No, we need to no, teach need everybody to how gossiping. to have a relationship with other people yeah. and to stop gossiping.
0: Yeah. You know? Right.
1: Because, like, right. yeah. Like, well, you got to treat these problems much. at the root. You, if you don't treat yeah. these problems at the root, you're just going to be treating symptoms, like, until everybody's dead.
2: Well, and, like, I, I think good. the biggest Go problem ahead. is that, like, it's because our culture is, co- is non-confrontational. Like, yes, it's important to be kind to people. But also, it's also important to, like you said, address the problem at the root. And a lot of times that just means saying the thing, not, not like, well, it'll hurt someone, but saying the thing for the good of saying the thing.
0: Yeah. 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 I, I was going to say, well, just this is a quick plug that <laughs> for for me, like the the rise and triumph of the modern self that I'm reading through that now started to open up my my brain to what, like I thought that I knew my generation, but then after like now I'm almost done with this book and like being almost finished with this. I mean, it's like, this; it's very dense, but I've learned a lot even about my generation and just how, what, what we're thinking philosophically and psychologically about things and, se- and the over-sexualization of everything and children and all these things and why people feel the way that they feel. I think that it could be beneficial for parents to read that book and, um, for the sake of their kids, but also for themselves, probably, because you don't even realize some of these things until you until you I mean, until yeah. you realize it. But yeah.
1: yeah. And I don't I don't mean to take away from people in the psychological disciplines who are who would say we've learned so much about depression in the last 20 years and about trauma and so on. I have no doubt about that. Yeah. I think one of the reasons why that's true is we've created a culture in which we've produced the highest abundance of trauma and depression that there's been in a very long time among human beings. Mm-hmm. And so they have an abundance to study and tinker with and have right, learned a right. bunch of things. But right. I do not think that that means that like all of a sudden we just diagnosed half the population with depression when we were all – we all always felt this way. Right. right. I think that people were capable of joy in ways that we're, we're – we're, like people th- – everybody thinks they're going to be happier without religion. And then it turns out you're not. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah.
2: The religion is in fact the very hope that most people cling on to when like there's nothing left for them. Right. And it's not just
1: because it fulfills the first category of giving you a worldview that allows you to understand who you are in the universe and to deal with suffering. It also – Creates the family and puts Mm -hmm, you in families and teaches you how to fight for and have a good relationship with your family and Mm -hmm. produces non-objectifying friendships that Mm -hmm. allows you to and gives you the humility, have an expansive Mm -hmm. sense of the self and -hmm. teaches you the importance of work and doing something for the good of others. Like Mm -hmm. all of those come from the Judeo-Christian ethic or usually religious or other centered or God-centered ethics. mm -hmm. And it's very hard to support those in the presence of sheer selfishness. Yeah. Yeah which we think will make us happy. That's the, the whole expressive individual thing. If I can express yeah. myself, I'll be happy. No. Right. If you can forget about yourself and care about another, you will find yourself happy.
0: Mm-hmm. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. Um,
2: yeah. Um, I mean, as a Gen Zer, like we've talked about social media and technology a bunch mm-hmm. and how it's causes for depression and everything. I think like the last thing I think that we should talk about is how parents should handle phones and technology and how old people or boomers, I'm sure they're young at heart should handle like kids being on their phones around them in the most loving way without always saying, push your phone away. Like you don't care about me.
0: We did a podcast called, um, should Christians use social media or something like that? Mm -hmm. And we talked about some of these things in it. So if you, you should go back and listen to that one if you haven't listened to it yet um my opinion on on technology and phones and things like that for young kids like i don't think that i don't think young 99 of young people shouldn't have a smartphone i mean people like like when you when you get 18 you know my, when my kids turn 18 they can go do get their smartphone but not in my house like that the yeah. the, the one thing that i think parents fail to recognize is that the the kids are developing with the technology and they're learning it right away. And so they know, they know all the ins and outs. They know everything about the technology. So even if you try to like shut it down in some way or put restrictions on it, it's like they know how to get around it because they've like grown up with it. And so you're, you're kind of stupid to think that you as a 50 year old, 60 year old person is going to be able to outmaneuver the technology that you give to the kid who's grown up with it all around them their entire life. And so because and for that for that reason I'm out. No, like that's that's <laughs> but for that for that reason I would never give a I wouldn't I think they yeah. should just keep it away from them. And I think that if you're giving your kid it's basically just like a it's it's a, it's a sexual sin device and it is a terrible terrible thing for somebody who who can't use it in 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 a responsible way. And I don't right, think but, you Yeah, go ahead, sorry.
2: Right, but so what's the difference between encouraging your child to cultivate substantive relationships by not giving them a phone. It's like, no, go, go talk to your friend, go hang Mm -hmm. out with them while all of these other parents are making that extremely difficult. Like for me, when I was in about sixth grade Mm -hmm. or like fourth or fifth grade, like all my friends had like an iPod or whatever, and they all would text, text each other on it. And I didn't really. And I felt an automatic disconnect with my friends Mm -hmm. because the only time that I could talk to them was... When I was with them in person and like, well, well, and like, I, I, I completely agree with you that phones really shouldn't be a thing, but that our society has made them a thing. Mm -hmm. And that if, if, if like all the millennial parents decide together, we're Mm -hmm. not going to give our kids phones so that they all can become better friends and form more Mm -hmm. substantive relationships and persevere through hardship. Mm -hmm. Then I think it could really work. But I think there is actually a level of like, I'm actually blockading my child off from even being able to sprout a relationship because the like most poignant level of communication, which is texting or Snapchatting, mm-hmm. they don't have access to.
0: Yeah. a Part of it, you're, I mean, part of the realization that kids are going to kind of, the parents should teach their kids to, in some capacity is that like part part of being a Christian is that you're going to, your life is going to look a bit different than the world's. And sometime that's, sometimes that's, sometimes it's going to be extremely painful and it's not going to, you're not going to like the outcome. Like, yeah. so it means that maybe you have to give up relationships and friendships and things like that. But if giving up a phone, it's like, if your right arm causes you to sin, cut it off, like or your right hand or whatever he says, or if your right eye, you know, out. Gotcha. Um, if this thing is going to cause somebody to sin, if, if the question for me as a parent is, Okay. Is this going to make my kid like get super addicted to this terrible thing that could affect the rest of their life? Or is it going to mean that they aren't going to make some friends at 15, 16 years old and people like, I'm going to be, I'm going to take the the second route every time because sure. most of the people that you're friends with in high school, you don't, you don't even stay friends with them. So no. I, I, I don't, I don't think that there's even really a trade-off. I don't see that, that, that don't even no Like you just, there's sacrifices that you have to make.
2: Would you yeah. as a parent... And I know you don't have any kids yet, but it, but yeah. when you do have kids, would sure. you be more willing to transport them places and take them anywhere they want to go to hang out with their friends? Yeah. Or would you kind of still be like, no, figure it out. Like, you, um, like if you want to pursue this friendship, like you got to, you got you to gotta do all the things to do that.
0: My parents took the second route, like they, they took my <laughs> phone away and then I was like, I want to go hang out with friends. They're like, you got to figure it out. And like I did because I wanted to hang out with friends. So there's yeah. part of that. But yeah, if my kids want to have, want, a want to ride or really go places. Like if they want to use my phone to contact their friends, that's fine. Like I just, I, I'm just not going to give them the, the, the like I'm, who wouldn't want their kids to have friends. That's crazy but mm-hmm. I also don't want my kid to be like me and just watch like six hours of porn a day and, right. and do terrible things and with girls. Mm-hmm. So what's the trade off? I, and I think, I think, yes, I'll, I'll be as encouraging as as helpful as I can <laughs> in, in helping them develop relationships. Cause I think that's important. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Yeah. I mean, so my, my dad gave me a phone when I was 12, but I only could use it for a camera. So like I I I only because like my big argument was I'm like well Apple phones have the best cameras right now like why would I buy a camera that I'm only going to use for a year and then just buy a phone? So well, I, I got. Well, that's not
0: that's not technically true, but.
2: It, right, it wasn't, but because I got,
0: kids are evil and they just want to get what I, they want.
2: Hey, listen, Andy, I believed at the time it was a good argument, so I got <laughs> I got, I, got, I got like a, like a like a four inch iPhone four or something and oh yeah. And uh, I used it for, for a camera. And then when I was 13, I started paying for my own data. I bought my own phone. All the expenses were mine. Yeah. But yeah. I was able to have that luxury. I'm mm-hmm. kind of curious what my dad, whether or not he regrets it or if he would <laughs> do it similarly.
1: Yeah, I'm a little torn about that. Um, I have a couple of kids. So three of my kids are essentially like using digital products, right? My youngest is 14. My oldest is 19. I think Rachel is sorting out her relationship with technological products. Um, But I've also watched her binge watch TV shows for hours hours and 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 hours of time. And I think now she's coming to the point where she's like, this is a waste of time. And maybe that was a small price to pay if she's learned that lesson, you know? but i i also watched like my oldest daughter we didn't like part of it is like when you homeschool your kids they're doing their work on these devices yeah so it's really hard some it's it gets really hard to control these things
0: you know yeah.
1: um yeah i i i have a close friend who um whose daughter got a hold of one of their ipads and was like watching videos at night, and oh, like yeah, she has yeah. a certain, a sensitive enough temperament that it, it like over time produced like a personality disorder for her. Like mm-hmm. it was really incredibly detrimental to her well being. Um, so like I look at kids, and I just, I just feel really bad. I look at, I look at, you know, you know, like how when you see a young person, a kid, and they just don't look anxious, mm-hmm. they look happy. They're living outside of their head. Mm -hmm. They're interacting with other people without fear. They are living vigorously and energetically. Mm -hmm. And I look at, I mean, so many children now, and those kids are rare. Mm -hmm. The kids that are living free, they're just rare. Mm -hmm. And I feel like I'm just lying to myself if I pretend I don't think it's the technology change. Mm-hmm. I think it's other things too. I think it's sexualization, yeah. but my generation was pretty freaking sexualized. Yeah. And my generation was pretty commodified. I think it's gotten worse, yeah. but I think the technology has made it worse. Made
0: it worse. Yeah. That's the. Yeah. yeah.
1: And so I, and then of course, my oldest two kids are girls. And mm-hmm. so the pornography stuff, I just don't think was as bad. Right.
0: Yeah. Um, so Compared yeah, to like still... the body image, but the body image was probably pretty bad. No
1: i think for my oldest daughter yeah i think rachel coped with it a little bit better but i think that i think that if you're not a if you're not a victoria's secret model then it's gonna affect you you know what i mean and i mean i'm sure it does them because they know that the minute they don't look like that they're gonna be cast aside like a piece of garbage yeah you know
2: yeah i mean i mean like if i like i can i think i can speak this a little bit i i'm I'm white, but I'm also Jewish and Italian. Mm -hmm. And a lot of my features represent those two things, um, Jewish and Italian the most. And because of that, I felt really alone in my friend groups and around the people because like I have a more curvy build and I have big, puffy, brown, curly hair. Mm -hmm. And I look like none of my friends and I have not seen any girl in Wisconsin that looks like me. Mm -hmm. And that created like a huge identity crisis because I'm like, okay, well... I can't resonate with, with any influencer because I'm not the same as them. Mm-hmm. And also, I still need to figure out how I can mm-hmm. love myself and realize, like, I'm never going to be a toothpick. Not mm-hmm. that that's bad. There, there can be some beautiful toothpicks, man. But, like, I am, will never be one of those unless yeah. I starve myself. And yeah. I think the only reason I didn't grow up with a severe eating disorder is because I'm a foodie and I just love food. Not that I overeat, but like I just love creating things and I love making new things and experimenting. Mm -hmm. And I think there are a few really pivotal, like temperament things and hobbies that I latched onto when I was younger that like really helped me avoid the severe body dysmorphia and depression about how I look Mm
3: -hmm.
2: um, that I think helped me out a lot. Um, If girls don't figure out a way to understand that they are this butt, or that but, then I think it's going to be really difficult for them to overcome not looking exactly like someone else.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. I don't have any sisters or anything, so I have no idea how. So
1: I, so I think there's a couple of things that I still want to say. One is I think technology is going to change over the next five or six years as we mm-hmm. parent. And there's going to be better parental controls I think there are going to be some better things like there's something, I think it's called a circle phone right now that has like just very few apps on it. It's completely parentally controlled. One of my friends, they're his two oldest teenage daughters have those phones so they can text him. They can call. There's Mm -hmm. a few things that they can do, but the apps are very limited. Right. Um, Also, I I think that one of the digital native things that you said, Andy, I don't agree with that. Like if you give your kid, allow your kid to have a technology, they'll be able to get around whatever parameters you set as a parent I think that they sometimes they will lie and do whatever they want. But I don't think that technologically they necessarily are going to be a leg up on you if you're savvy at all. Because I think software is so user-friendly now that it's different than like when, like I was always ahead of my parents because you had to learn about technology to be able to use it when I was young. And so I was always ahead of my parents. But I have found parenting so far, I have been ahead of my kids at almost every turn still. Hmm. And I'm in my 40s and they're, you know, like, getting up to upper teens and 20. And I think it's because of my, I, when I was learning about technology, I had to learn how to do stuff. I wasn't, I wasn't an Apple user. So I don't just click on things and they work. I had to figure yeah. out how to fix stuff. Mm-hmm. And because of that, I can do things that they can't. And that's included things like putting pornography filters on our home Wi-Fi, mm-hmm. putting things like covenant eyes on my son's stuff. And he doesn't know how mm-hmm. to get around it. Mm-hmm. And like all these different kinds of things. So I do think that parental controls are going to get better. I do think there are options out there. I, they're not super easy, but they do exist. But I feel like as a parent, you better gird up your loins and get some other parents around you that you, that you believe similarly. If you're going to tell your kids no technologically, you need to emotionally prepare yourself for the grueling work of continually saying no, because Mm -hmm. they are going to, they are going to like just push you and push you and push you and push you and push you. And And so if you're going to say no to technology, you better be ready for the long haul.
0: So I don't think it's, like, no yeah. to all technology, too. From, I like, just phones and, like, internet-based yeah. things. But there phone, needs to be phones limits. are eight-tenths of it, in
1: a way. Yeah, like yeah,
0: yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: It's the, it's the world in their pocket.
0: Yeah. I
2: mean, that's yeah. the... Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think some things, like, it's worth dying on the hill. But some things, it's just, like, as times are changing, we have to... <laughs> like improvise, adapt, overcome. What is that? Like a, like, a, is that like the Eagle Scout slogan? Just with our phones. I like.
0: Don't remember, yeah. <laughs> improvise, adapt, overcome. I, I don't, I don't Maybe know. But
2: James Bond, who knows? I want to say that's Maybe.
0: one of the branches of the military.
2: <laughs> <laughs> okay, yeah. Feel... That might
0: thought, be a way, way to look at it. I still take the, yeah. So, so we got to wrap this up, but I just want to, for the record, say I, I would still take the side of, I, I would die on that hill. Because yeah. I, I, don't, I don't think that Christians and conservatives have the capacity to adapt um, quick enough. And I've seen it happen over, uh, over a long period of time. But we do. Yeah, we're like two and a half hours into this. So, I mean, <laughs> is, is there any, which is great. Is there any, um, any final wrap-up comments?
2: The last thing I would say is for teenagers my age, um, the only way to really figure out yourself is to do things alone. Mm-hmm. whether that's uh, like unlocking things that you didn't know were a problem in your life,
3: mm-hmm.
2: take yourself out on a date, go to coffee mm-hmm. alone, leave your phone at home or in, or, or in your car, bring a book, like become a regular and spend time alone consistently to know yourself because yeah. that's, what's going to allow you to form that element of conscientiousness that is so important when you get older.
0: Rachel, I'll yeah. translate that to boy. Um, <laughs> when you go poop, just don't use your phone. <laughs> Yeah.
1: Have relationships with older people that you have respect for. Pursue spiritual friendships where you can talk about spiritual stuff, like deeper stuff that isn't shallow, that that's not cool to talk about. I think is really important. Mm -hmm. Pursue a good relationship with your parents, even if it's not easy and your Mm -hmm. siblings.
3: Yeah. Mm
1: -hmm. Um, I, yeah, I think, I think just like you got to get away from the glitter and you got to realize that, I mean, Marcus Aurelius, I think said one time, the goal of life is not to be in the majority, but to live in such a way as to not find yourself among the insane. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And I think that that's really fitting for this moment in time.
3: Yeah.
1: That if you want to be happy, if you don't want to be depressed and suicidal, if you want to find yourself as a deeper person, if you want to be like, you can't, you're not going to find that among the majority.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: And if you're not willing to become a dinosaur, then you can't be on the cutting edge of the future. Mm
3: hmm.
0: Yeah, yeah, I agree. Um, So, okay, well, to wrap this up, Rachel, good job. Yeah, she's uh, so
1: articulate and mature. mm -hmm. And
0: (laughs) I wonder, I wonder, yeah, who like instilled these?
2: Who? Yeah, who did? Who? Who? It was was pretty nice
1: how most of the parenting episodes she referred to were somewhat positive. (laughs) (laughs) She has plenty Uh, of alternative ammunition.
2: I'm sure, sure I, I know, I, I'm sure I'll expose you later at some other time.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. we'll just do an exposing Nick Gibson podcast. <laughs> um, so, but yeah, Rachel, you did a good job. Thanks for coming on and, and doing this. And I'm sure we, we can talk about Gen Z in a different podcast again or other things. Um, and for those of you listening, thanks for listening. Make sure you like, subscribe, share, follow. Send this to people that you like or that you think need to listen to it. And give us a five star. Go to OptiveNetwork.com. And those are all the things that you should do. Send Andy large
1: checks. Out to himself.
0: Yeah, yeah. So send me large checks, write it out to Andy Schmidt. Um, and we'll see you guys in the next one. Goodbye.
2: Thanks for listening to this episode of the Engage and Equip podcast. If you have a podcast idea or a question you'd like answered on the podcast, send us an email at podcast at highpointchurch.org. If you'd like to find more episodes, you can go online to highpointchurch.org podcast. You can also find us on Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Overcast, and other apps like those. We hope this episode was helpful to you as you grow in becoming a more substantive disciple and part of the local church. If this episode was helpful to you, rate or review us on Apple Podcasts or share this episode with a friend. Those are some of the best ways we have to reach new listeners. Until next time, thank you for listening to this episode of Engage in Equipment. Bye. Yeah.